This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 25 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. That's right. We're at the quarter way to 100. If this was the world of comic books, this would be overpriced and have like 12 extra pages. But instead, it just has me, Trevor Dame. And as always, it has in not New York for once, my co-host, Matt Feuerstein and Every Boston show, you know, it's not quite a guest, not quite a regular. It's the third chair, Joe Gagney. So boys, how you doing? I'll go first. <laughs> um, I am not New York, but I'm not going to tell you where I am because that way you could just try to guess from the room tone. <laughs> that's that's all. That Got was nothing. A pause to let people listen for room tone. Oh, I see. <laughs> giving you a good chance to take a nice long listen. Joe, how are you doing? Oh, doing great. I, I want to thank both uh, Matt and Trevor for uh, delaying this a little bit while I uh, got a family vacation. Yeah, a little not, bit. Not out of the way, but I had, I had to. Just kidding. Know, they want to get this a little earlier, so if this is a little later, you, you can blame me. These fine men were looking to uh, record. A Definitely blame Joe. Yeah. Also, for any other things that are bad about this podcast, please blame Joe. That's what I, that's what I've been doing for most of my life since an ill-fated appearance on his show. Um, but you know, <laughs> something that people could have been doing while they were waiting the extra week for an episode of Through the Years would be listening to all the other fine Place to Be Nation pro wrestling only podcast network shows. And what I'm going to recommend to this episode is the Place to Be Nation reaction show for SummerSlam, which is with Chris Zellner and Devin Hales. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned these reaction shows before, but Chris does a really good job of just doing reaction shows. And I feel like a lot of times people, you know, they stick to the same few places for reaction shows. And, you know, they, there's places that do a good job, but I feel like Chris is kind of underrated. He does a very good professional job. And sometimes it's in cases like this, it's just him and Devin Hales, but sometimes it's more people. But... I think even though it's maybe a little bit old, this is a reminder in the future, if you see a big WWE pay-per-view and want to hear a reaction show, this network has you covered here on that too. You know, in a lot of ways, this is a reaction show, but it's sort of like a 15-year delayed reaction. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way I can handle anything. I need to parse my opinion through dozens of other of people. For for many, many, many years. Yes. And um, I guess we should also, I didn't know if I wanted to put plugs in at the start or the end, but I think we should always, anytime as Joe, on, Joe is on, remind everybody that Joe Gagne does every podcast imaginable. He, uh, If there's a wrestling podcast you like and he hasn't done a guest appearance on it yet, you should be uh, very offended and wonder what their problem is. Let's call, Con- he- let's call Conrad right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh. I I can't wait until we. I was just leafing through uh, that Sean Oliver book Kayfabe, which is all about the behind the scenes of Kayfabe commentaries. And uh, let's just say I felt like I needed a shower after looking through that book. But I feel like if anyone could do a podcast with Conrad about behind the scenes of wrestling podcasts, it would be our friend Joe Gagne. Joe, get on it. That guy, that <laughs> that, that guy, terrible. That, that guy, that guy can make you rich. Well, I guess I guess there is that. You know, I was going to make a joke about uh, you plugging Chris Zellner's uh, other show because you know everyone thinks I just don't hear enough Chris Zellner on the on a podcast here. 
but I'm probably, you know, I'm probably not one to talk. So I'll just I'll keep the old track. <laughs> no, no, you, you, you are, you are one to talk. I think that's what we're trying to get at here. <laughs> and if you want to hear Joe Gagney talk on a show that's not about 15 year old Ring of Honor, there is Joe versus the World on thecubsfan.com. I mean, where... I mean, well, well, you're getting pretty close to it being about 15 year old Ring of Honor at this point. For certain episodes <laughs> of Joe versus that, the World. With that WWE talk, yeah. And you've got the five star match game, one of only, I believe, two pro wrestling podcast game shows. And finally, we have um, Joe's semi regular here. So you're not going to hear the last of Joe, despite our best intentions. So before <laughs> we. <laughs> before I just we get, got that. Before we get to. Um, the, the one there's one big news story that's relates to the show but before that we actually have an email from our favorite Joe Joe Sposto <laughs> the former Leonard F Shikarson and uh, he had he had an interesting thing to say about the last show we covered uh, bitter friends stiffer enemies and I'll just read Joe's email here actually let me give a little background we we mentioned during that show that there was a match that had a minute or two edited from it. And Gabe Sapolsky made this kind of weird comment where he was like, that's the last edit you're going to hear on that <laughs> on the show. And we felt that was kind of weird, but we just thought, uh, maybe he's just being really honest or something. But no, that was an in-joke. And thank God that apparently half the people that listen to our show actually attended these shows and are named Joe because <laughs> Joe Sposto came through here with this email. During Chris Daniels' pre-match promo, some guy... Sadly, he was with me, yells something untoward at Daniels. I can't remember exactly what it was, possibly about his mother, but Daniels leaves the ring and gets up in the fans' face, the two yelling back and forth for an extended period of time. The whole exchange is cut from the home release, even though Daniels continues to play back to this fan constantly during the match. I only bring it up, as you mentioned, Gabe says on commentary, there will be no more edits on his show. So, um... I want to thank Joe as always. He he will be on the show in the future, and but I want to thank him here for just being a great fan and adding that piece of background. And it's funny because Matt, I think one of at least my complaints about that match was uh, Daniel spent too much time during like an important match arguing with that fan, but apparently they cut a lot of that out. So yeah, I mean, I think I think that's for the best, to be honest. Absolutely. I just makes me wonder how much time he was spending talking to this guy and like how mad did, like did Daniels really get angry because like they actually felt compelled to edit minutes out of this apparently. Sounds like he got angry. Yeah. And so now we have the before we get into the show we are covering today, beating the odds, we have a story and I had to think about how we were gonna dive into this because normally at this point in the podcast, I cover the stories that happened in Ring of Honor between the shows, the last show we did and the show we're about to cover. And then I save any stories that are about the matches, any tidbits or information I found for right during the talk of that match. And this is a story where it's kind of like I could slide in either because it kind of affects this show, but much more of a larger story. So I will kind of just explain what the story is and then more how it relates to Ring of Honor. Because at first it will sound like a TNA story, but... I will start reading this from The Observer. This happened between Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies, and now. Uh, TNA started apparently giving wrestlers contracts at this point, like more concrete contracts. And The Observer describes it as thus. 
The contracts are not just merchandising agreements, but exclusive wrestling deals for the time period. The contracts have huge ramifications from an independent level that have not been discussed. That is, it gives TNA the right to approve of every wrestler's independent bookings. TNA can also act as a booking agent for all talent. The contracts do have a specific salary level per TNA TV appearance, but in most cases do not guarantee a certain number of bookings during the year. So there are no technical downside guarantees. They also provide for a certain lead time where you have to give the promotion written notice. I'm not sure if it's 30 days or 60 days. If you're going to be unavailable on a Wednesday, of course, this was back when uh, TNA was still taping Wednesday pay-per-views, I, I believe. From a U.S. standpoint, these deals will greatly affect independent wrestling. Many of the TNA regulars work weekends for indies around the country. In most cases, the company likely won't care. The exceptions are probably Major League Wrestling, since it has television on Sunshine Network, and Ring of Honor because of its high profile. In both cases, while there don't appear to be any plans to keep talent from working with these groups, although down the line I could see this being a problem if one of the groups gets big, and certainly would be one if one of the groups got pay-per-view, TNA does not, does not want their storylines and characters compromised. It was specifically pointed out that they don't want and wouldn't approve of a babyface in TNA working as a heel elsewhere. Case in point, Jerry Lynn on MLW or CM Punk's heel straight-edge char drug-free character on Ring of Honor and MLW, which isn't used in TNA where he's currently a babyface. They also wouldn't improve characters who are aligned with each other in TNA wrestling against each other elsewhere. Case in point, Raven and CM Punk feuding on indies all over the country while in the same group in TNA. This is likely to slightly handcuff promoters who use these wrestlers since they would have to clue in TNA in regards to booking of their wrestlers before getting appearances approved. While not specified, I'm also guessing that TNA would probably not allow its champions the job on independent shows, at least for those with television. Right now, this hasn't been specified. Ring of Honor has been talked with by TNA officials in brief, but no serious guidelines have been given. They were asked to use similar storylines, and Ring of Honor officials have no intention at this point of doing so. They point The point they've made is that TNA changes its character so often while Ring of Honor books long-term, and they don't want to be at TNA's mercy to have to change their booking plans when TNA decides to change an angle. So obviously that's a big mouthful, but this uh, we talked about a few episodes ago when AJ Styles wrestled uh, Paul London about that where because AJ had just won the NWA title he couldn't have he couldn't lost and they had to change that match to a draw. That was kind of the first time TNA impacted Ring of Honor. This is the first time you really start to see the clouds of of what's going to be the storm in 2004 of. TNA starting to throw their weight around a bit. They kind of want the indies to stay in line with them. And I, I, I kind of am surprised at the cheekiness of Ring of Honor basically saying to Dave, like, we don't like TNA's booking and they're too scatterbrained. Like, that's honest, but to also basically say, yeah, they asked us to kind of do their storylines and we told them no. And yeah, that is going to affect things in the future because... And not just the future, but right here, because Joe, I don't know if you remember this, you attended the show live, but this was originally supposed to be the, the main event tonight, which is Raven versus Punk, was supposed to be a hair match. Do you remember the hype for that? No, just the cage match was all I really remember being hyped about it. This was actually publicly um, announced 
as a hair match, like by Ring of Honor and everything. And in the one, the first change, I think this is the first time TNA actually like forced to change. They stopped this from being a hair match and then it was changed to the cage match. And we'll go through a little bit of that history now. Um, well, it's funny, just as before you go that, you know, up until this point, whenever TNA was mentioned, the, they, it did not get a negative reaction from the ROH audience. And, you know, by not too long after this, fuck TNA was a very common chant at ROH shows. So it's, you know, you're beginning to see, like, why. Like, it makes a lot of sense that the ROH audience would not like TNA and would resent them for, uh, for various things. And I think TNA, they were in a really weird position, and they would be for much of their history, in that they were big enough that they felt like they could kind of make demands of their wrestlers, but they weren't big enough to be their sole employer. So they had to kind of do this weird dance with places like Ring of Honor, where TNA feels like they're not giving you, even you know reading that thing from Dave, most wrestlers did not have guaranteed contracts, just a guaranteed price that TNA would pay when they booked them, but TNA was still most of these guys considered like their, their most important promotion, but yet they still had to book themselves on weekends to kind of make a, a living. And TNA was, you know, making demands of them, which it kind of placed the wrestlers. I feel like in a very weird middle ground, which we're going to see right here in this story. Um, so yeah, basically in the observer report weeks before the, this match, that Ring of Honor will be promoting a Raven versus Punk hair versus hair match in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This sounds like something made up from a 1970s wrestling program, but Ring of Honor outbid TNA for the match. And I actually did some digging, and of all places, I found Raven telling, kind of confirming this in a recent appearance on, um, what's, thank God Joe's here, what's a Don Callis' podcast? Uh, that would be Killing the Town. Uh, yes, killing the town. I actually, listen to that clip of that him today. Apparently, um, Raven, and this this is Raven, so take everything with a grain of salt. Said he decided he wanted to lose his hair for somebody. He said his hair was in a weird growing phase, is how he put it, and he wanted to cut it off. And so he wanted to see if he could get some money for for losing it. And Ring of Honor, he said Rob Feinstein offered him a good sum of money to lose it in Ring of Honor. He said $5,000. I don't know if he was joking when he said that, but that's the figure he gave. I believe Raven at this time, Dave had reported in The Observer, was making something like around $1,500 an indie show. So $5,000 to lose your hair seems in line with that. And basically the story is that when TNA heard this, they they said we're not going to... TNA would... When he was doing the negotiations, TNA didn't offer him any money to lose the hair. But Ring of so he makes this deal with Ring of Honor. They announce it, and then TNA decides we don't want if you we don't want you losing your hair in Ring of Honor. In fact, apparently, according to an observer, weeks and weeks after this match, Jeff Jarrett told Raven, "If you lose your hair in Ring of Honor, you will not be booked in TNA until your hair grows back." And so Raven says in this Killing the Town interview, he decided that because he was working for TNA, he would lose his hair in TNA. And he said they did end up giving him a little bit of money extra, I guess, to uh, lose his hair in TNA, but nothing close to what Rob Feinstein offered him to lose it in Ring of Honor. And the, the weird extra side note of this is 
if you, if any anyone who wants to Google this because it's on YouTube, Raven a few weeks or a month or two after this, he lost his hair in TNA in a match against Shane Douglas, and it's kind of infamous for James Mitchell shaves Raven's head. And he runs the Clippers the wrong direction and basically kind of scalps Raven and cuts his head open very badly, makes him bleed. And Raven got into a physical confrontation with him backstage after the show. That's how angry he was. If you were, if you were Raven, what would you have done? Um, I would have just been like, um, Raven. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> that does not solve the problem in any way, shape, or form. Well, are you talking about what I would do if James James Mitchell scalped me, or what? Well, no, I no, done? I meant the dilemma, like with TNA and ROH both asking him to about you know to the hair thing. Well, it, I mean, it goes to show that I think steady employment. That's one advantage TNA ha- had over places like Ring of Honor, where I don't know how much. Raven was making per shot in TNA, but the fact that, you know, you don't know how long you're going to be in Ring of Honor, you don't know how many show bookings you're going to get for them. So even if you're making one more money on this one night payout with Ring of Honor, TNA is probably the safer bet long term. You're going to be there every Wednesday. Right. I, I think I think it's a no brainer too. Uh, and it doesn't seem like ROH was particularly mad at him about it either. In the end, they think they seems like they understood. So. But again, it goes back to that weird dance TNA and Ring of Honor had to start engaging in where, you know, this is outright TNA just saying, like, we don't if you're going to do this anywhere, we don't want it in Ring of Honor and we're not going to match their money. But we just feel like we're the bigger promotion. And in so many ways they were. And like that means something. If you want to stay here, you have to do that. And we'll see wrestlers make that choice. Yeah. And it's interesting. it'll be interesting to see, like, the ones who actually don't make that choice as we get down the road and the one other thing i want to read relating to this is uh they actually had to post an apology on ringofhonorwrestling.com for canceling the hair match and i will read it here due to unforeseen circumstances the hair versus hair stipulation will not be able to take place in boston on september 6th when raven and cm punk battle in a steel cage Punk and Raven would like to express their deepest regrets that they are unable to participate in this stipulation due to previous contractual obligations with TNA. Raven would like it known that it is his fault and his fault alone because he placed himself and Punk in that situation. Raven apologizes and promises to increase the violence in Boston by making this a clockwork orange house of fun in a steel cage match. Raven is truly sorry for this term of events. And thanks you for understanding. When asked what he plans to do for the Boston fans, Raven said, quote, Punk must die and you will see new levels of violence from me in Boston on September 6th. All right. So here's something that I'm a little bit confused by as far as the timeline. So at the end of the DVD uh, of the last show, Bitter Friends, Different Enemies, they did promote the cage match, right? Yeah. Part of me is wondering, like, I don't remember the time and uh, and poor Joe, he does not remember because it's 15 years. And I can't, I don't blame Joe for that. I can't remember things that happened 15 days ago, but I don't know if this was always going to be a cage match that also had the hair stipulation. Yeah. That's if, the one that I can't remember. That's what I'm trying to figure out also. Yeah. Yeah. I, or if it was hair to cage, it sounds like from that apology, it was a hair and cage match and with 
because I just know by the line we're going to turn this into a clockwork orange house of fun in a steel cage. And the earlier lines were talking like, oh, it was already going to be in a steel cage. So Right, right, right. Maybe, maybe that's why they added all the weapons, which turned out to be a great, quote, uh, idea. Hmm. But... But uh, the one other part of the apology I'll get to just very quickly. Raven said – no, Punk said in response that Raven must die and I will end this in Boston under any rules and conditions he wants. And I thought that that line was pretty funny because a show or two ago, um, Punk's, you know, P- Punk was in the ring doing a promo and the fans chanted, Raven's going to kill you. And Punk said, Raven's not going to kill me and I'm not going to kill Raven. I'm going to be realistic, you know, all the stuff. And I feel like it's funny that obviously Gabe was probably writing this apology and instead he just says, like, both guys say they want to, they're going to kill each other. This is going to be more violent than ever to make up for the fact that there's no hair. So that is most of the background. There's actually more to say about Raven Punk in the hair match, but I think that's more appropriate for the match itself. So let's finally start with the show. The September Ring of uh, sorry, uh, beating the odds took place September 6, 2003 in um Cambridge, Massachusetts in the Carbono Fieldhouse, I believe. Oh wait, it was moved from Cambridge to Wakefield, Massachusetts. So- yes, we were back in Wakefield, although at different buildings. So for those keeping score, this is the third building in Massachusetts in five shows. So no and more. I actually got uh, just for the record, I got lost going to this show, and I missed the first two matches. So uh, my live expertise will not be on display. But I thought, well, they'll they'll air those matches uh, uncut, so that won't be a problem. Well, from the sound of things, Joe. It's uh, it's a good thing that you that they moved it from Cambridge, since clearly there weren't any geniuses in this audience, given how you couldn't find the building. Oh man, that cutting a heel promo on me. I know, and also very convoluted one at that. <laughs> Actually, we didn't have GPS back then. We just printed out directly from computers. MapQuest, more primitive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And actually, uh, Joe is not the only uh, internet wrestling luminary there because Sean Radican from the Pro Wrestling Torch, this was his first ever live Ring of Honor event. Maybe his first Ring of Honor event he had seen, period. And so we'll actually have a few comments from an article he wrote throughout the show, giving his some of his insights to what happened live, in addition to Joe. So we've got you covered two ways here. Uh, a couple notes from The Observer about the start of the show. Dave says they announced at the start of the show that Low Key and Dan Moff and Xavier wouldn't be there. Uh, Low Key was due to a broken jaw from taking a hard knee from Wataru Sakata right before the finish of their August 31st bout in 01. Dan Moff was, of course, due to whiplash and an injured neck from the legit knockout Low Key gave him at Better Friends Different Enemies. And Dave doesn't say why Xavier missed the show, but. Uh, I think he had a shoulder injury at the time. Hmm. See, that's why we got Joe here. And oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Dave says Loki isn't expected back for a while. He got his jaw wired shut and won't get the wires out for a month, at which point he's got a zero one tour planned. That may be pushing it, but he's put pressure on himself because he's missed two tours this year already due to his shoulder injury. Moff is probably off the September 20th show, but they expect him back in October. So that's one other thing to remember with Loki, where I think we kind of think of 2003 sometimes or at least late 2003 is you know low-key leaving ring of honor and getting downshifted but part of the reason why he also isn't here in ring of honor as much in 2003 is not just the, the zero one tours or politics but because this was kind of a 
pretty rough year physically on low key between a b- badly broken jaw and a severe shoulder injury. Yeah, I mean, it's not super surprising given how physical of a style he worked, but you know, it's a little bit of a bummer because he was clearly in the middle of a pretty incredible run before he got hurt the first time. Yeah, yeah, it's just right when he starts kind of having to maybe start up new feuds, it seems like he's got outside outside bookings and he's getting hurt and then you get to the homicide feud later in this year and maybe he's not as interested in going with the booking on that as some might suggest and but we start the show the dvd release proper with cm punk and colt cabana backstage punk says he's going to x out his hands with raven's blood he uh, basically gives an entire recap of their ring of honor feuds uh, thus far he just runs down it all um, Punk appears at this point to still think that Raven was the person that attacked Lucy. That he can't prove it, but this promo he seemed to indicate he still thinks that. And Punk ends his promo by saying he's going to nail Raven to his ex tonight, which is a nice little bit of foreshadowing. Or actually not foreshadowing, he just like outright <laughs> says what he's going to do. We just don't know it yet. Yeah, we just assume we we assume it's a metaphor and it's not. Yeah, he's he's being literal here. Um, it's it's funny though because um, with Punk's promo, it's it's kind of like a calmer version of the promo from the end of the last DVD, and that's sort of something that happened before. Because if you remember, at WrestleRave he gave this really intense promo, and then he started Death Before Dishonor with a like sort of a calmer version of that same promo, and that's sort of what happened here. He gave this really intense promo at the end of Better Friends, Different Enemies, and then he just sort of repeats the same point, only much calmer, and like kind of like a calm before the storm vibe with this with this promo too so it's almost like a trend for punk where the beginning of the dvd he's calm and collected and evil and then at the end of the dvd he's like angry and righteous and but he he says the same thing in both both of the promos and this this promo it also it when you talk about that kind of remind me this might be the first of a few hints we get tonight that maybe this feud, this is the night that this feud goes from the Raven Punk feud goes from really good to maybe a little bit past Bad? its best by date. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the fact that Raven, that Punk's promo is a little less memorable, and he spends most of it recapping the feud, maybe that's a sign that we're kind of running out of material for here. There's there's not a new wrinkle to be had with this. Right. Um, we go, Colt ends up, you know, he was standing right beside Punk. He starts his promo. He says tonight he's not going to be funny and tell jokes. He says tonight the headband and the aviator glasses come off, which I guess is his sign for getting serious. Colt says the field of honor tournament is where he becomes a superstar. Uh, okay. And then next we cut to Raven sitting backstage against a wall as he is wont to do. Raven recites a little poem and says, for CM Punk, heaven is no longer an option. Raven says he is going to kill Punk tonight and starts maniacally laughing, ending with, quote, the Raven, nevermore. And finally, our last little promo before the first match, we get Jimmy Rave and AJ Styles backstage for a very short little clip where we see AJ tell Rave that the Field of Honor tournament is a big opportunity for Rave and that he believes in him. This is this is the start of the idea that AJ Styles is Jimmy Rave's mentor, which is going to be a big thread throughout a lot of Jimmy Rave's Ring of Honor career. We get a Field of Honor graphic overlaid on video of Colt Cabana lacing his boots up and doing stretches backstage. 
We get his name, hometown, Ring of Honor debut date, and his first Ring of Honor match. What block he's in, and his current Field of Honor record, which is zero and zero right now, like everybody's. It was something Ring of Honor tried to do with this Field of Honor to differentiate it. I mean, I appreciate they were trying to do things different. It really wasn't that like special, but you know what? They're trying. Yeah, it's worth a shot. And finally, we get to the first match of the night. Field of Honor Block B, the first match in the tournament. Colt Cabana defeats Jimmy Ray via pinfall in 13 minutes, 6 seconds after he hits the Colt 45. So F- Finally, we get to the first match of the night, or do we? Yeah, because actually, yeah, that's a perfect way to go into it. Yeah. Before I throw it to Matt for this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> a couple minutes. So here's, here's the... I've talked to Matt already privately about this. This is the crazy thing. If you've been listening to Through the Years for the last few episodes, you know Ring of Honor's been really hyping up the Field of Honor. They've been doing this whole thing where the announcers don't know what the tournament is. Half the wrestlers don't know. Some wrestlers apparently do know, but no one's talking. They just know it's a tournament. We had on a recent show Colt Gabbana do an entire show-long storyline asking wrestlers what what the Field of Honor tournament is and how he can get into it before he finally pesters Rob Feinstein into letting him in. So we finally figure out what the tournament is. It's a two-block round-robin tournament where it's four guys in each block. The point leaders in each block will face each other in a final match. The winner is the Field of Honor champ. So here we are. After all that, months of building it up, little video teases, all this mystery of, Doug, what's the Field of Honor? This is the first match in the tournament, and a couple minutes into this match, Doug tells us, Doug Gentry on commentary tells us we have footage of something that happened earlier in the night, and we immediately cut to it. Um, And that footage is the Backseat Boys showing up late to the show, walking before the show starts. This is something, this is the kind of thing, Joe, you miss when you're busy looking at MapQuest, because you miss incredible things like the Backseat Boys walking up to the merch table. Uh, Gabe tells them that they're there at 7 p.m. when they should have showed up at 5. Johnny Cashier picks up a Best of Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard tape and looks at it. Uh, Rob and Gabe are not pleased with the Backseat Boys' tardiness, to say the least. The Backseats then wander over and see Homicide and Julius Smokes and ask if they can sign autographs with them. Homicide finds the tardiness disrespectful as well. I guess Homicide, Stickler, you know, one of the parts of the code of the streets is just don't show up two hours late to a show that hasn't started yet. Uh, Trent reminds Homicide that he's beating, beaten him twice in Ring of Honor in tags and singles. The Carnage crew are nearby. They pick up on all of this and they say the backseat boys are acting like little bitches. Homicide then just decides to jump Trent. They start brawling among the fans. Smokes Julie Smokes goes out and attacks Johnny Cashmere and keeps yelling, who wants some? <laughs> and then the fight, fight ends and Homicide says, fucking... And then he says a different F word we're not going to repeat here. And he then, you then can hear a fan yell, get me on camera, please. (laughs) (laughs) Homicide calls Trent a other F word we're not going to say, N word we're not going to say, and then tells Rob Feinstein to stop being a pussy and fire him. So that clearly is not something you could do today. (laughs) No, I, um, I mean, I don't think it was the, 
ROH's plan to do it that time either, but certain wrestlers just uh, they got yeah. things and they got things in their vocabularies. And but that was one thing they weren't going to edit or retake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly now, I think there would be an edict not to say those words, or they would bleep them at the very least. I'd hope. Um, but yeah, starting and and the funny thing is that was not the most problematic thing on this show. Um, <laughs> but all the lights this show has to offer. Yes, but. Yeah, it was really interesting that they decided that the Field of Honor was so important that they were just going to cut away from it for a really long time immediately. And it wasn't even a lie. Like, this is happening elsewhere in the building. This happened. Yeah. Like, they, oh, we just got the tape. Better play it now. Yeah, like, they could have pl- played it before. They could have played it after. That's a great point, like, Joe. I mean, because, yeah, again, to emphasize, Doug does not act like this is happening live. Obviously, you can't because the whole thing of this segment <laughs> no. is it's before the show. Yeah. So he literally says, we have some tape. We have to show it now. And, like, right at the start of the match. And we re- when we rejoin the match, Gabe tells – he's not trying to shit on the match. But he says something like, "Don't worry, you didn't miss anything." <laughs> but 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 no, no. But the way he says it makes it sound like he was trying to shit on it because he goes, "Don't worry, you didn't miss anything with this match." He literally says it like that, like this match. So and I think he might have been trying to shit on it a little bit. So I mean, Matt, well, I'll get your thoughts in just a sec. But I think we can mm-hmm. all agree it's kind of crazy that they spent quite a bit of time building up the concept of this tournament and even trying to give it a little bit of air of mystery. And the, by like literally minutes within the first match, once you come back and hear Gabe say what he says and see that they've cut away from it, it feels like the least important thing on the show. Yeah, this was one of the biggest booking decisions, worst booking decisions, I should say, Gabe's ever made if his goal was to make this a big deal. Because he immediately painted as a jobber, like, secondary thing. I mean, you know, it's like the... It's like, you know, any match in WCW that didn't involve the NWO in 1996 and 97, right? Like, where they just... We have more important things to worry about, and the important things are not this. And that's how they painted this match immediately. So what did you think about the match itself, though? Like, the match quality? I mean, booking aside. It was kind of... um, a basic opener is sort of how I looked at it. Like it didn't, it didn't feel different from another ROH opener. It didn't feel like this match had special oomph because of the field of honor. Um, Cabana, you know, they sort of had tried to play this thing where he was getting serious for the field of honor, but at least early on in the match, he didn't seem particularly serious. And it's actually funny because, you know, normally he wears a singlet and on this show, he was wearing a, just a black long sleeve shirt under his singlet. And at the beginning, I assumed, like, oh, this is like a goofy look that he's going for. We found out later that that is not why he was wearing this shirt, but that's what I thought. So I was like, oh, he looks as (laughs) silly and goofy as ever. Um, But the story was Cabana was working over Rave's back, and, you know, he would do a series of things uh, to to work the back. He did a bear hug on him, Uh, you know, so the playoff, you know, just to play off that Rave was the underdog, which I think they did a pretty good job with. Um, one thing I noted, because remember we were talking last show about how we noticed Carrie Silken at ringside for the first time? I was looking yeah. for him here, and I did not see him. Did you see him at all on the show? Uh, no, you, I did not. Yeah, just, just a small thing that I noted. So I guess he wasn't there for every show yet. But, yeah, so we did the bear hug. There's another spot, you know, where Rave does his kind of head scissor almost into, or like a spin around into the crossface. So Colt blocks that and actually grabs him on his shoulder and does a backbreaker over his shoulder, which I thought was really cool. 
And he eventually won with the uh, – he escaped the crossface. He eventually won with the Colt 45. So the back work I thought was good. Um, I thought Rave was still missing something. Like his work was solid, but I felt like he still didn't feel like – he didn't feel like he was really anything special yet. And um, and after the match, you know, they, they, they played up with AJ telling Rave like, oh, you should have worked on the neck during the match because that would have set him up for the crossface and things like that. But um, as far as the match itself, it it just felt like any basic opener. It didn't really feel any different than than that. Joe, watching this on a home release, did you feel deep pain that you did not get to see this live? Or <laughs> what did you feel about this match? I just found it amazing. One of the few matches I missed live is one that actually got kind of edited down a bit. <laughs> uh, speaking of the whole field of honor, and this is clearly taken from Japan. There are you know over a dozen of these fairly notable round robin tournaments every year but the difference is with those tournaments you know they always have the biggest stars there this is not the case with this one this is kind of more of an up-and-coming one outside of xavier uh you know and singles matches are so rare in japan just look at the undercard of any new japan show Uh, and any match even between like yoshihashi and togi makabe has some novelty to it because that's the only time this year you're going to see it and jimmy raven cole cabana you could see uh, that could be booked on literally any show and there's always, you know, if you look at these tournaments, you know, they're done within, you know, three weeks. And the G1 goes about a month. That's pretty long. But there's always momentum. And, you know, with this, we're going to take, you know, there'll be weeks off in between shows sometimes. You're going to be talking about this show for a long time. So it never really builds that momentum. And a lot of independent groups try this, and it, it never really works out. And, you know, I, I like the match itself. It was nothing that would inspire you and think, oh, my God, this tournament's going to be amazing. It was just a good opener. There are a lot of... There are a lot of good moves I like, which kind of sounds like a backhanded compliment, but <laughs> I liked Rave's kind of... He did this kind of weird roll-up kind of deal. Colt misses a tumbleweed. I, I always like the trip spot. There are a lot of good little moments of this match. I thought it was a good opener overall, but nothing that's going to... You know, nothing that made me sad I missed out live. I, I, I think that's a good point about the round-robin thing. Like, I think it's playing with fire as an indie to do a round-robin, and I think in some ways Gabe did smart things like... There was a list we report on from The Observer a bunch of episodes back, like I think way earlier in the year when he was planning this tournament. And he David obviously talked to Gabe and gotten a list of certain guys he was considering. And they were a lot of the guys who were in this tournament, who ended up in this tournament, and it was all mid-carter guys. And a couple of the guys that, did, that were in that list that didn't make it were CM Punk, who obviously quickly ele- elevated himself out of the mid-card, and Chad Collier. And in a way, it was smart that Gabe went out of his way to not book anyone that had any Japan commitment. So that way, he didn't have to worry about that throwing off like an intricately booked round-robin tournament. But going to what you said, I th- Joe, I think you made a really good point about by making it an all-mid-carder tournament, it didn't really feel like you were seeing matches you weren't going to see otherwise. Like, part of the fun of the of like the G1 or something is like, these guys are going to have to face each other, even though there's not a big angle reason for it right now. You know, we're going to get to see another Tanahashi Okada match, even though they've wrestled so many times. It's like the next chapter, just because it has to be for the tournament. It's like, no one's excited. Like, we're going to have to see Colt Cabana versus Jimmy Rave in 2003. Like, there's no way to avoid it now. No, no one's feeling that way. It's also worth noting that other than Cabana himself, the roster for the Field of Honor was particularly uncharismatic at this time. Like, the guys in it were not known for their personalities at all, except for Colt. 
and, and another thing to mention is um, it's kind of hard to create drama in a round-robin tournament where each block is four people. Yeah. Like, you kind of can't have the, the the drama of, oh, a guy starts losing at the, at the start of the tournament, but then he wins at the end and ends up making it into the finals or vice versa or whatever. Like, when it's a four-man block, you kind of just have to have the guys you want to push win. Y- you can't go that crazy with the booking. Or imaginative, I guess. You know, I was kicking around ideas. What they could have done is have uh, two blocks of six wrestlers each. That's... Uh, <clears throat> That's uh, 15 matches per block, so 30 matches total. They could have done, like, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then another Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They could have done, like, you know, all the tournament matches over the first five shows, have the finals on the last one. You could have all the big stars, and hopefully that condensed amount of time. You wouldn't have to worry about Japan commitments and all that. I mean, If if that's something they wanted to pursue, I, I was just kicking the tires on that. That feels like something you. That feels like the best way you could do a round robin tournament today. If you were say like a PWG, if you just want to say you know this year's Battle of Los Angeles is just a, a round robin tournament, and you had the budget for it, and they're one of the ones that probably could. But yeah, a Ring of Honor at this time, I don't think was just had it in them to do a star studded robin over like a weekend event like that. Um, as for this match, I I thought it was fine. I I agree with Matt when you talk about it's weird that get, that Colt talked about how this was going to be serious Colt tonight and the first half of this match he was wacky Colt and it's weird because actually that was also what got him over like the fans really liked all his standard goofy comedy spots here he was getting booed and fuck you Colt chance to start the match but then once he starts doing his simple comedy like tricking Jimmy Raven to running and getting tripped or yelling at the crowd for cheering on like two counts and stuff. The crowd like gets into cold and it's like, Hey, we like this guy. He's funny. And I felt like rave didn't get to show much in this match. Uh, I agree, Matt, there's probably is something missing with rave still at this time, but this really felt like it was more Colts match than anything. Um, Colt did this weird mix where he would do, like you said, those, basic stuff like the bear hugs but then he would do like a a beautiful twisting senton or he would do a matt seidel's move where he uh grabs the guy like a reverse ddt and then pulls his leg over and like drops him with the leg like he would do these things you don't expect colt caban to do and then he would do two bear hugs so it was kind of an interesting like blend of offense there but I like the bear hug thing, honestly. You don't see that in ROH very often, especially from a guy like Colt Cabana's size. You know, he's bigger than all some of the other guys, but he's not like a big guy, you know, in, by wrestling standards in general. Yeah, but overall, per a- average match, it was kind of hard to get into because of the cutaway. It looked kind of a slow start. It got better in the second half, but we're off to an average start, which might be the case for a lot of uh, Field of Honors. We re explore this tournament. Um, after the match, we cut to Rave backstage as the vo- we hear the voice of Gabe Sapolsky ask him to talk about being in the Field of Honor tournament, but AJ Styles immediately interrupts, he barges in, and then he starts saying that Rave lost because he didn't work Colt's neck, and then AJ throws like a fatherly arm around Rave's shoulders and walks away with him. He tells him he's trying, but AJ has advice for him, and as they walk down the hall together... I guess AJ's giving Rave the advice. So again, 
Rave is not going to win a match in this tournament, but they're going. It, this is classic Gabe booking in that when he knows a guy's going to lose a bunch of matches, he still kind of wants to give him like a storyline thing to chew on, or even turn those losses into a story, which is what Gabe's doing here. And that's if you watch enough Gabe Sapolsky booking, you see that's like a very common technique he loves using. He's going to give Rave a, a storyline, even if it's about losing. Um, it ends up paying off down the road, so it, it does. I mean, definitely, these guys will be involved together for years to come, on and off. Uh, we cut to Colt backstage, who reveals a gnarly, contagious-looking. I don't know if you would call this a rash, hives, something horrible is on Colt Cabana's skin, as Matt had requested at when we first saw this weeks ago when we were watching it. This will be the image for the show, even though it's pretty dark. So you, you'll you'll see this. It's all over Colt's neck and chest, which explains why he had to wear such ridiculous clothing, you know, that covered like a shirt under his tights that covered his neck and everything. Yeah, basically he's like, uh, I'm I'm tough because everybody told like the doctor told me not to wrestle. All of my relatives said not to wrestle because of this. And then he shows that he pulls down his shirt and he shows the rash on his neck and I guess like a little bit on his like shoulders and I don't know if it's chicken pox or or um, shingles. Or, we were wondering, yeah, really. shingles or just some sort of other thing that's going on, just some sort of allergic reaction. Um, I guess it's none of my business, but he was showing it off. So, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, whatever it was, it was not something that made Jimmy Rave say, "No, I'm not going to be touching that guy a lot." Like you have to do in a wrestling Cole match. Should have uh, taken his culture, taken his sweatshirt off before the bear hug, and then he got in the immediate. Get, uh, tap out there. Maybe, I, I sure would have. Maybe it was poison oak. It's <laughs> like, like really blue during, <laughs> like. Oh, so that that I don't know some of the maybe it's just my my DVD. No, no. It looked really blue during the last two uh, interview segments. So that is just they. I, I was I was listening to an honorable um, mention podcast, and um, and they mentioned that just Gabe when he would do the backstage comment uh, backstage interview segments did not bother to white balance the camera. So the coloring was just off, and I think that's all that was. That yeah, that's something I've heard on that podcast uh, on an honorable mention as well. That I've heard more than once. I think Shane Hagedorn bemoaned that Gabe and the Ring of Honor, some of the people there, would not color correct. And if you who watched the uh, fairly recent New Japan show at the video game convention at CES. I think some of the cameras, like the different camera angles for the in-ring action were not like consistent in terms of color matching. So, yeah, I, I, I know, Joe, like I saw that too where I really noticed it on this show. Like, wow, there is like a dramatic difference between like the coloring on the promos and just the color scale when you're watching in-ring action. But yes, Colt, if you're listening uh, if you, and you want to share what exactly malady you were dealing with on this night, because I, I imagine you probably remember, uh, let us let us know because, you know, we just were very – we have a lot of interest in uh, modern medicine and in uh, infectious and non-infectious disease. So we just, you know, we're just curious, curious folks and want to know uh, what your uh, what was going on with your skin on the, this random night 15 years ago. Um Truly, this was the most in. This was the most famous skin problem that's ever happened to a wrestler from Chicago. <laughs> uh, anyway, Colt said he's going to to the top, and Colt Cabana superstar will be born. That leads us to our next match, match two of the night. Slick Wagner Brown with April Hunter defeats Diablo Santiago 
scored to the ring by his regular tag partner, Oman Tortuga, via pinfall in four minutes, 19 seconds with a big power bomb. Joe, I'm going to throw it to you first on your pins on this match, but I think the first big question is, to my disbelief, someone in the crowd had a SWB, Slick Wagner Brown, ROH sign. Was that you, Joe? Did you get a big Slick Wagner Brown ROH sign? No, I came in at the end of this match. Yeah, yeah. So, Joe, uh, Joe, uh, Joe, Joe actually did have that sign, but he by the time he got there, the match was over, and he tore it up and threw it out in anger. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot. I yeah. forgot you missed the first two matches. Yeah. So, so it is a it is a funny coincidence that this other guy had this sign that you were also bringing. Mm. But I mean, I, maybe I should should have given you a meteor match, but this was mostly a squash, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just a vehicle to get slick over. I, I watched this twice, and I, I barely remember any of it. But, uh, <laughs> he won with a pop-up powerbomb. And then uh, Oman thought it was, he could hit on April Hunter. He thought this was a good idea, and it uh, she beat him up. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's all I have to say. I'm always... Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, th- not much to say, except... I felt like this continued the Ring of Honor streak, or maybe in a lot of a lot of indie wrestling streak of two competitive squash matches. Like I felt like for the short time it had, Diablo Santiago was way too competitive with Slick Wagner Brown. Brown got to do a, a bunch of impressive offense, but it still felt like it was a bit too back and forth. But I feel like that's just indie wrestling where. You're not paying these guys a lot, so they feel like the best we can offer is that you're always going to get a chance to show off a little bit. So it's really hard for them sometimes to just fully accept a squash match, even though, you know, it was a short match. And when you watch Slick Wagner Brown, he continues to be a guy that does some pretty athletic, impressive things for his size. But he's the kind of guy, I don't know if I'm being mean to him, but like every time I watch him, even when his moves hit, I feel like he got lucky almost that they hit. Like, I don't know if that's unfair of me, but he's the kind of guy I'm never confident in him, even when he has a good performance. Uh, Matt, did you have any thoughts? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, um, I was surprised that there was a big slick chant at the beginning. Like, he uh, clearly had some a following at this point, at least in this part of the country. Um, so that kind of surprised me a little bit. I actually want to mention just a little bit about Diablo, because um, you mentioned you, you guys talked about slick. Um, it's always interesting to me, like, he, 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 ha- he seems like he could have been athletically decent, but obviously he was very, very, like, tentative and unsure of himself. And he would do moves that I thought were a little bit beyond his pay grade. Like, this guy in this position shouldn't be doing this moves, these moves. Like, um, like, he went for the top rope headbutt, he, uh, he did a, like, a, a, a bridging T-bone suplex, like, stuff like that, um... Just uh, he just seemed like he he was doing things that he couldn't quite do, um, and he got his nose busted pretty bad. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to add beyond what you guys said. It was just a, basically a a, uh, a showcase for uh, for uh, Slick, and he was over to a point. So I guess good for him. Yeah, going to Santiago, the only things I noticed is, like, I wrote, he did not look good here. He threw some shitty punches and a crappy (laughs) super kick, although I'm not quite sure whose fault that was. But, yeah, he was at least attempting things, maybe, as you said, maybe attempting too much. But 
this was probably his like biggest spotlight moment yet in Ring of Honor. So after the match, uh, Brown shakes Santiago's hand, but Oman Tortuga gets on the mic and asks if Brown noticed that he and April Hunter had some chemistry. He says that she was looking at him during the match. He grabs her arm and tries to get her to touch him, but April slaps him. Oman goes to hit her, but April ducks and chops him. Oman reverses an April Irish whip into the buckles, but April climbs them and actually hits what's basically a version of the eclipse that Ember Moon does now. I wrote man-on-woman violence, but mostly woman-on-man violence here. Oman seems to have the most charisma of the outcast killers, at least tonight. I would say that's true. They, they are the, he's the one that gets to do the angles. Yeah, he's the one who gets to talk of it. I was surprised to see the eclipse, and I thought, oh, we can check off man-on-woman violence tonight. It's it's a little bit, but it's there. But uh, the check mark would get colored in very deeply a uh, little bit later. <laughs> so next we go to a four-way scramble tag match. The Backseat Boys defeat the Ring Crew Express, Special K of Dixie and Izzy, and the SAT in 8 minutes, 50 seconds, when both backseats pinned Jose Maximo, or I guess Jose Maximo, after Trent hit a big jumping knee where he sp- springboarded off of uh, Kashmir's back. He was bent down. Um, SAT is another act. We talked about Slick Wagner Brown. SAT always seemed to be super over in Boston in Ring of Honor. There was a big chant for them before the match. And... I thought this was the, I thought the story of this match when I started watching it was going to be the Ring Crew Express were treated mostly as equals in this match, which might be one of the first times of that. But then by the end of the match, I think clearly the story to this was Izzy. I felt like he was the star of the show. He was working his bag off, I, as the Canadians who play hockey would say. Um, yeah, I never, I never even heard that saying before. Working his old, bag off. If you, yeah, in Canada, you hear it a couple times. Working the bag off. Um, he, but he was working it, the bag, at, <laughs> on both sides of this match in terms of uh, he was taking big bumps, including, I think, the bump of the show where he took a one-man Spanish fly into a crowd of wrestlers on the outside, off the top to a crowd on the outside. He was trying to do a bunch of innovative things. It felt just like it was his night. Like Even when he tried to do a... Um, a Hurricane Rana on the apron. It looked like he was going to lose it, but he managed to save it. Like, it just felt like one of those nights where things were working for him. And as a match on the whole, it was more of just, it was, an, I thought, in a slightly above average scramble where it's the same thing. It's big moves, doesn't overstay its welcome, sometimes sloppy, but it's there's always something different going on. You know, everyone's jumping in and out. And in a way, I'm starting to get scramble fatigue I really feel like you and me, me and Matt are not to put words in his mouth, but it feels like the last couple shows. I feel like we're starting to hit the wall with seeing so many of these scrambles that don't really affect anything, but they're still good, like for what they are. Like they're still producing what they're there to produce, which is just a quick burst of of craziness. Um, Joe, do you? What did you feel like seeing this? Would be the first match you saw live, I guess. Yeah, no, I actually really enjoyed this. Looking back in retrospect, I thought all the execution was, by and large, good. I mean, a couple things looked a little wonky, but it wasn't bad. There was just some insanity in this. There was like, like, Dun and Marcos hit the biggest doomsday, I mean, uh, demolition, decapitation of all time, just randomly in the middle of the match. Uh, There was, like you said, the Spanish fly at the outside. One of the Maximos hit this, like, Northern Lights brainbuster that was just crazy. 
And um, yeah, I thought the execution was good. It didn't overstay its welcome. And uh, I don't know why, you know, it seemed the backseat boys had either Dunn or Marcos pinned at the end, and the SATs broke it up, and then they got pinned. I don't know why they didn't just pin Dunn and Marcos. But uh, no, I like this. This was exciting, and the uh, crowd was super into it. So thumbs up for me. Matt, I mean, did you. Uh, I felt that kind of speaking for you, but how, I'm, I'm curious to see, like, how do you think about this match both on its own and in the context of we've just seen so many of these now? I mean, I literally wrote what you said. I'm looking at my notes right now. It says, this was an above average scramble, but I've just seen so many of these now with the same guys that they're losing their impact. And it is just like a mix and match of the same guys most of the time. Um you know, like, but you know, there were some cool spots. You know, people love the dream sequence. You know, there's SAT is still doing the washing machine, but they're still like releasing the guy's arms, which is a very slight improvement. Um, Iz- Izzy has benefited because he's taken it two times since Derange got like le- legit hurt on it, and both times he they've released his hand. So Derange died, so Izzy could be saved. Apparently, yeah, I agree. I liked um, one spot that I liked in this match was when Izzy and Joel kept blocking each other from trying dives. I thought that was cool. And then the climax of that was that Joel hit the one-man Spanish fly onto everybody. I thought that was a pretty cool spot that you don't see that often. Otherwise, it was you know kind of a lot of the you know same kind of stuff, but you know they always change it up a little bit. And I agree with you that Izzy looked great. I think this is the second show in a row where he's looked really good. Um, one thing I found funny was Gabe. He mentioned, "Oh, you know, people still talk about the fight without honor between Homicide and Trinacid." I'm like, "Still talk about it? It was two <laughs> months ago." <laughs> like, I, this it would be like that's that would be quick if they forgot about it already. That, but um, so I, I think Gabe was just trying to build excitement for what was to come. Yes, I, I would yeah. forgive him that. I agree. It's just it was a funny way for him to phrase mm-hmm. it. But I, but I, yeah, I pretty much agree with what you guys said. It was. It was it was a scramble. It was a pretty good version of that scramble, but I've seen too many of them. But I, I'm glad Joe's here because I think me and Matt and Joe, like together, we kind of give a very good. I think on this match, like if you've watched every show with us or recently, you'll probably feel like me and Matt did, and with Joe feeling like feel, uh, largely agreeing, but being a little bit more like more hyped for it. I don't I don't think if if you haven't watched uh, like every show from the beginning in the last year. You'll, you'll probably feel more like Joe. I think you'll appreciate this match a bit more because there is some real craziness in this match and it's fun, but it's 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 still the same brand of fun we get every single show. But after the match, uh, the backseats shake hands and are friendly with the SCT, which gives no sense since uh, makes no sense because the backseats recently turned on the SCT after an eight-man tag they lost. This match, like, there's no real acknowledgement on commentary about that or why they're friends again after this match. And then we get to one of the first moments on the show that really was edited out of the home release. And I'll go to Sean Radikin's report at PWTorch.com. Radikin, who was there live, writes that after the scramble, after the match... Homicide came out and challenged Trent Acid to a match later in the night. Trent says no because he has already beaten Homicide twice. Homicide asks again for a match and Trent agrees, but only if it is a straight up wrestling match. Homicide says that if he loses the match, he will leave Ring of Honor. Homicide gave up his spot in the four corner survival match to get a shot at Trent Acid. Now, what's interesting about this is. They do a later segment for the DVD, a batch, a backstage segment where um, Homicide asks Rob to for this match, and 
They never mention at all, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the angle of Homicide agrees to leave Ring of Honor if he loses. In fact, if you go to Cage Match and look up the results for this show, it lists this as a match where, like, if Homicide loses, he will leave Ring of Honor. Gabe and Doug, and correct me if I'm wrong, do not bring that stipulation up once. That was apparently only for the live crowd. Yeah, rewatching. I was checking my show notes and seeing that, and they never mentioned it. Like, there wasn't like, oh my god, Homicide has to leave, like, during any near falls, anything like that. It was just another match that, you know, they, I guess Homicide just wanted to win. And yeah. um, just looking over my notes, uh, it says, uh, Homicide, Julius Smokes, and that other guy come out. So I don't know who that <laughs> was for the a long interview segment. I'm not sure who I was referring to at that point. I forget if it's some way their crew run together, but it could be Benny Blanco or mm. Louis Ramos. Like, there's a lot of those guys that were often in the gang segments on these shows. Mm. But next we get a field of honor block a match. So we had a, the first block B match. Now we have the first block a match of the tournament. Matt Stryker defeats John Walters via pinfall in 12 minutes, 32 seconds. When Walters leg collapse while attempting a power bomb leading Stryker to hook his legs for the pin. So before we talk about this match, I just have a, uh, a couple little notes here. The first is I, I, I want to mention Doug says the field of honor. He starts early on in this match, Doug Gentry on commentary and God love him. Rest in peace. Doug does not get appreciated for his contributions to the show. But Doug says in this match that the field of honor just seems to get better and better. as we <laughs> roll along. This is match two of the <laughs> tournament. <laughs> Uh, what I, I, I rewound this to listen to it again. I think he um, meant. I think he meant. I think he meant to say, "Well, the field of honor got better." This one time where it changed, it got better. Uh, and as always, it seems like we cannot have a John Walters match without Gabe saying that John Walters is a can't miss blue chipper. Yeah, and Doug yet again. And Doug, another funny thing, he says that Walters is already skyrocketing to the top, which if you've been following this show, he's not been skyrocketing and he's not to the top. So I don't know what they're referring to. Gabe actually says there is no doubt that John Walters could be a main emitter one day. Uh, there, will, there, will, there will be doubt in 2004. I wrote down, um, I wrote down that this is 2003 Gabe's dream match. Yeah, yeah it re- two of the mid-card guys, he he pushed the hardest, and you could tell from the way he talked on commentary that he really had a, a bit of a man crush on. Matt, what would you think about this meeting of Gabe Faves? Um, so, it was one of those matches, you know? Like, a, like you, when you think of Matt Stryker versus John Walters, this match was that. It was... Would, no, I don't even mean that... In a fully negative way. I really don't. See, that's the thing. You saying that will mean different things to different people. Like, it means something different to you than it means to me, but I completely agree with you. Yeah, like, it's... I. I it was... There was a decent execution of the technical stuff. It lacked intensity, for sure. And it was a little bit dry and dull. And it never got to, like, that really kind of fun indie level the way that the BJ Whitmer Matt Stryker match got where they're just dropping bombs on each other and the crowd's going nuts for the near falls never got to that level it was just like solid technical wrestling that was kind of boring that's how I would describe it um yeah but there are a few interesting spots um at, uh well for one thing Stryker is working on Walters's leg which is something that Stryker does in most of these matches 
and I thought Walter's selling was above average for ROH guys at this level. He was very consistent with his selling for the most part. You know, he would do like he did the Hurricane DDT while favoring the leg. Um, there was one spot I thought it was funny. Walters was in a front face lock, and he was like tapping the mat to get the crowd to clap. And I was oh, like, yeah. I was like, how does the ref know that he's not tapping out? This is a this is an inconsistency. Um, how can he? How could I guess the ref uses his judgment to decide what's tapping and what's making the crowd clap? But I feel like that's a spot. Sorry to interrupt, but I feel like that's a thing where like now that MMA has really taken hold in like the culture, especially in the wrestling culture, like that's something a wrestler would never do today. But like some wrestlers maybe still didn't realize what tapping could be seen as. I guess. I mean, I'd say tapping out became the main form of submission in wrestling by like 97, 98. Right, and you, but and you would definitely, if you saw submission holds before that, you definitely the, the guy would bang the mat in pain or to get yeah. the crowd going. And after that, not really. So it's been about it was already about five or six years by this point. Um, but you're right; it's just like a, a holdover from what the wrestling that maybe Walters grew up on. Um, yeah. But otherwise, his selling was good. Like even like he would do chops and he would collapse on his knee. Um, but you know, then but then Striker, you know, did the rolling Germans. Walters actually hit a choke slam backbreaker, which I thought was crazy. He hit it on his bad knee, which to me makes him seem a little bit dumb, but at least he sold it afterward. Um, and he went for a power bomb. His leg buckled. Striker fell on top for the win. The crowd was actually pretty pissed about this, like they, because I guess Walters was a hometown guy. So I don't necessarily take it as a backlash against Matt Striker, but I guess you could take it that way. And then Walters takes the mic, and I went yeesh because. There's just a lot of a lot of guys just like they they give they do unnecessary mic work. Like if you remember from the last show with um, Stryker and Whitmer, where they're both like, "Oh, I respect you. We need to fight again." And it's just like very boring promos. And this was similar to that. Um, the one uh, noteworthy part was when Walter goes, "Every loss is hard for me to swallow." Then some guy in the crowd yelled, "You swallow!" Which to which I to which I wrote, "Stay classy, Boston." Um, feels like a very Boston thing. No offense, Joe, but I guess you're not you're oh, not fr- you're not from Boston, right? You're from you're just from yeah. the same state. So it's I'm not talking about you. Um, All right. They're no, they weren't in Boston to be fair, and they never are. Don't be fooled uh-huh. by uh, Gabe. I, I mean- it's not classy, but I laughed like a child at it. So I well, mean, it had its charms. It's funny that it happened. <laughs> um, like uh, there is something for the perfectly placed immature heckle, like when there's just that second of silence and someone comes out with something like that. Like it's not the usual "you suck." Like just yeah. something so stupid but so perfectly <laughs> timed like yeah, that. I agree. Um, so Walters, he said he guaranteed victory at the next Boston show in November. And I was just thinking, like, so you're not so confident about the matches you're going to have from ne- between now and then. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that was that match. It was just – it was that kind of match, and that meant some good things and some bad things. Yeah, for, for this match, I felt like uh, – like you said, it was what you would expect from Matt Stryker and John Walters. I'm a little bit harder on Matt Stryker than you are, but I don't I, – again, I felt like this match was fine. It did not pay me to watch. It was – perfectly acceptable maybe even a little bit above average match but it follows the same template that most match striker matches follow which is a few minutes of mat work to start and then it builds to a more typical format indie match with maybe less mat work unless he's doing his big submissions and bigger moves and there's just 
Matt Stryker, there's something about him that's missing a hook, and I guess John Walters is kind of a similar wrestler in that thing. They're they're both kind of create a wrestler templates to use a video game analogy, but Matt Stryker, you put a unibrow on him. And the one interesting thing I thought was pretty interesting about this match was there's a choice Matt Stryker makes, which is he does the the thing that he works on uh, as you mentioned, Stryker's leg during the match. But the move that injures Stryker's leg is he is, is his finisher. He does the the striker lock, his submission finisher, in the middle of the match. Like it's one of the first big things he lands, and it's interesting because there's two ways of looking at it, right? Like you could say doing the submission that early in the match it breaks up the flow of the match and gets you kind of surprised. And using it to hurt his leg, it shows how dangerous the move can be. But then the rest of the match. A lot of the match is him doing other submissions that aren't his finisher and the crowd kind of not giving that much of a shit because, you know, they're not his finisher. And you can look at it as either an interesting choice or I I can see both sides of it or kind of a weird choice. And it was interesting on commentary because Doug even kind of shits on um, Walters for he says like the effect of like. Walters let himself get in the in the in the striker lock early in the match. Like he like he was kind of shitting on Walters for getting caught with it this early in the match. So Striker tried to do something different. I don't know if it paid off for him, but the match as a whole, yeah, it, it's 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 a fine match. It's 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 just you hear Gabe and you can tell how much that he likes these guys, and the match doesn't quite these matches don't quite meet his enthusiasm. I think. But maybe me and Matt are just getting too much of a hive mind tonight. Joe, what do you think? Maybe you, maybe Joe Gagne loved Matt Stryker versus John Walters. Uh, I was kind of bored, to be honest. And I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like a bad fan for after I'm like, oh man, that scramble match was awesome, and now I'm like, ah, oh, boring. But I don't know. It was just it was just kind of dry. They didn't do anything wrong. They told a story, but it just wasn't super interesting to steal a Joe Lanzaism. Yeah, and uh, they mentioned Walters had, I think, 35 friends and family in the crowd. And I'm like, I don't know 35 people, period. Never mind people I could convince <laughs> to come see me an independent wrestling show. So kudos to him. But yeah, it's just I, I was just like, you know, it, you know, the, they told a story. It played into the finish. And it was just kind of kind of dull. So I don't know. I, I feel bad about it. But then, yeah, that's I'm, I may be the low man on this one. And going to the Field of Honor tournament again, I mean, this is the way this match and Rave Colt is how they kick off the tournament. And you'd like to think you'd want to try and jury rig the matchup so you really start with something big and exciting and really tell the guys, just go nuts. And these just felt like mid-card matches. Well, it just keeps getting better and better and better and (laughs) better. Well, maybe, maybe that's the theory. Maybe Doug's saying, like, let's start low and then it'll just keep getting better, but... I can't even say that's true. And it seems like Sean Radikin, who was also there with Joe that night, maybe not with him, but with him in the in the grand sense, <laughs> agreed with all three of us because uh, Radikin wrote in his live report, Matt Stryker defeated John Walters in a Field of Honor match. This was the worst match of the night. This match seemed to suck the energy out of the crowd. Wow. So I don't even think it was I'm, the worst match so far. <laughs> but the I don't know if I would blame this match for it. I mean, I thought it was interesting that that's what Radican seemed to believe, but that will be a theme later of 
some kind of shockingly tepid reactions for things, I think, later in the night. And I just thought it was really interesting that he's kind of pinning it on this match. I don't know if I would go that far, but it certainly didn't get a huge reaction. So, like Matt said, after the match, Walter's got on the mic. He, he, and, he, and he said what Matt said. Matt did a great job recapping it. But I, I think the only interesting thing to point out is I think he literally did the I guarantee victory next time in Boston, even though it is kind of awkward to say that. Just because Gabe knew I've jobbed this guy out in his hometown two times in a row now, like he hasn't won in Boston yet for us. So it was literally like almost like Gabe speaking to John to the fans through John Walters, like, please don't be mad. He's winning next time. Like, I'll get you next time. Trust me. Although I have to say, if that was his motivation, he might have been like worried too much because I don't think the crowd was really all that concerned with the fate of John Walters. Like, there, there was a couple fans chanting, bu- like, uh, like just a couple saying bullshit. It felt like he had like a few, maybe those thirty-five people, like but pockets it's not, of support. It's not. I'm not saying the crowd didn't want John Walters to win. I'm just saying I don't think it would have affected the ROH's popularity in Boston, whether John Walters was successful or not. That's all I'm saying. But uh, yeah, and, and I agree, but I, I just felt like it was very clear to me the whole point of this entire John Walters thing was just to tell the crowd, I'll win next time if you come. Like, if you come next time and you happen to like me, like, don't worry, you're not going to see me lose a third time in Boston. And he wouldn't. He, 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 he would be true to his word, and I believe he beats Xavier next time they come to Boston. So I actually don't know if he does, because I think... Wait, next maybe, match builds to final battle. So but that might, might have been a gauntlet match. I don't know. I'm we'll, not we'll, sure. We'll get there. Yeah, okay, yeah. And Joe will be back with us. But uh, we cut backstage to Rob Feinstein eating. And uh, Gabe, from behind the camera, asks what promos they have lined up. Rob tells Gabe. And then he tells Gabe that he has to try this chicken parmesan. Uh, Rob compliments the chef who is just down the hall. This has to be some kind of inside joke that I'm not getting because they really like call attention to this guy who made the food and they're really focusing on the food. Um, homicide and his crew then confront Rob homicide wants Trent acid so bad. He wants a match with him right now tonight. Uh, Rob warns homicide that that would mean missing his scheduled four corner number one contender match tonight, but homicide's cool with that. And so Rob says he can, if that's the case, well, I can make the match happen tonight. Um, Rob says they had a hell of a match in Philadelphia, but tonight Trent and Homicide will be even better. Julia Smokes then cuts a regular Julia Smokes promo. And in probably my favorite thing Rob Feinstein has ever done in Ring of Honor, he responds by meekly saying, chicken, chicken's good. And just, he doesn't know what else to say to Julia Smokes. I thought it was like perfect timing, perfect delivery for once. It was just like, Rob did not know how to react to Julia Smokes. I um I also think it's funny. I mean, it's a little bit later on, but during commentary on the next match, Doug Gentry's like, "Wow, I can't believe it. Rob Feinstein is backstage. He's eating healthy food instead of donuts in the backstage area." And I'm just thinking, like, is chicken parm now our standard for what healthy food is? Because like, I mean, it's not the worst thing you could eat, but it's I wouldn't I wouldn't put it on the healthy food scale. I, I mean, know. actually, it's it's pretty horrific for you because it's chicken covered in breadcrumbs, deep fried, and then covered with melted cheese. Uh, yeah, that's 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 about as unhealthy as you can eat chicken. You've yes. fried it and then put cheese on it. Yes, it is for chicken by chicken standard. It is certainly unhealthy. Yeah, Joe, do you have any um, thoughts on the healthiness of chicken <laughs> parmesan? 
Uh, chicken Parmesan donuts certainly would have been the worst thing. Yes, eat it. I would say true. chicken parm's an upgrade over donuts. I don't sure. know if this is some kind of uh, statement on Wakefield cuisine. I, I can't speak to that. Yes, I'm sure it does. It does worse for your glycemic index than donuts do. I mean, it does better than donuts. So, <laughs> I, I do think it's going to that commentary how it references Rob later. That was one of the kind of cute things we've mentioned it before that Ring of Honor does lose is. Gabe and Doug are not afraid to joke about Rob at like Rob's expense. There is a bit of that kind of family and friends feel of we're just a bunch of knuckleheads running a wrestling company and we'll like tease each other. And that does get lost as Kerry Silken is forced to take over. But there's other things that get better. So I I think it's not a bad trade. But (laughs) yeah, I think uh, (laughs) I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's a we get it's a net gain what happens later. But I guess we have plenty of time to talk about that on another occasion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we come back after intermission and we get the carnage crew of DeVito, Just Incredible and Loke defeating Special K of Angel Dust, Deranged, and Hydro in 15 minutes, 32 seconds, quite quite a length for this match, when Credible pins Deranged after he hits That's Incredible, the Twisting Tombstone, off the middle rope, or the middle turnbuckle. And before I throw this to Joe, I'll just note that we have kind of a different entrance for this match because we do something that Gabe has sometimes done in the past, but this time he fooled me. He starts backstage with a Special K promo where... um. Becky Bayless is complaining because she thought they were going to just party tonight and not wrestle. He's like, we re-, she's like, we wrestle all the time. Yeah, yeah. She's like, like you, we only wrestle all the time. And then the special, we, the camera just follows Special K like seamlessly as she says this through the curtain. And actually, this time it worked because I was like, oh, this is just a backstage promo and then there'll be a match. But like it seamlessly just caught me off guard and went into the match. But of course, the match is a different animal altogether. Joe, what did you think uh, about the six-man tag? Lots of things happening here. Yeah, it kind of fell apart by the end because there was just so much going on. I did like how, um, I guess Special K was having no luck, so they sent Slugger in and gave on commentary. It's like, well, they haven't established who the legal participants are in the match. I'm like, well, we've seen three Special K people tag in. So I'm thinking, yeah, we did. Like, There are like 800 Special K people on the outside. Couldn't someone have distracted you know, the ref while... Uh, but um, I know Slug at one point did her, uh, hit, I guess, an inverted choke slam on um, uh, one of the Carnage crew guys there. Although he grabbed him by the back of the neck, so I don't know if that's technically a choke slam because you can't really choke someone from the grabbing the neck. Massage. But, um, yeah, this was uh, yeah, like a, a billion things happened at the end. Uh, Slugger ran in, he got drop kicked out. Julia Smokes comes out, gives him a pep talk, tells him to get out of here. Uh, there's like a bunch of near falls and then the huge tombstone off the uh, off the top. So some, I mean, some decent action, but just way too much going on at the end there, and some problematic, uh, some problematic which, moments in the match, which we will get to. Um, Matt, wh- I mean, wh- <laughs> what did you think? Of, well, we'll get to the we'll get to the problematic after. But uh, what did you think about the match itself? Yeah, it's hard to talk about this match without that stuff because <laughs> well, it's actually yeah because there is some that occurs within it. Right? Yeah, it's part of the through line of the match. I would say this is the most problematic segment since the very early days of the Christopher Street connection on ROH. I would I would actually say that. Like, of all the ones I'm thinking of, I would say this is the worst one of 2003 at the very least um, so far. Um, pretty bad stuff. I'll start with maybe some of the more um, positive stuff. You know, there's... I thought Angel Dust was entertaining. Like, he was afraid of Justin Credible. He was like, I'm sorry. 
when he was like begging off of Credible. Um, I thought Justin did, you know, with his no release vertical suplexes. And then he did like seven and the crowd went nuts. I like that. I thought Derange was still very entertaining. You know, he showed off his his muscles and like he poofed out his hair. And, you know, I thought all that stuff was good. You know, there was very basic good stuff. I, I kind of, you know, it wasn't fully fleshed out, but I thought that it was good that they had the whole slugger kind of basically breaking off from the uh, Special K instead of just suddenly showing up with Homicide's crew. He actually, they did an angle to get him away from Special K. They they made him go in and fight for them. He was like, they were like, what are you, what are we paying you for? Then they accidentally drop kick him and Smokes comes out and drags him out. So I thought that was good. Um, but uh, should I should I start talking about the problematic stuff? Um, maybe we'll get to it in just a second. I'll, I'll give some quick thoughts on the match and then we'll, we'll let you get into the problematic stuff. All right. Um, I, I thought as – it's weird. I thought this as a match, I thought like these guys showed that they could have a fun six-man tag, but – the way it was booked made it impossible in the sense that they actually start off working a bit of a slower pace. And Doug on commentary is actually like surprised. Like I'm surprised special K work this slow can work the slower pace, but they work. It's not like sometimes you see these tags and even though they're not scrambles in name, they turn out to be scrambles, but they work this for the, until partway through like a regular six man tag. Uh, Loke was the face in peril, you know, they isolated them, and I, and I was kind of into it. But then, um, yeah, they have they shoot the slugger angle where, as Matt said, slugger comes out. He interferes, but then Julius Smokes kind of talks to him and gets him to walk with him to the back and talks about the Rottweilers, the mysterious Rottweilers. And we have some outside interference, which we'll talk to in a, in a minute, with Becky Bayless. And... It felt like by deep into the match, like the match was the least important thing happening. Like the match was just a, a an excuse to do these angles and after match moments, which was, you know, I, I felt like these guys could have done something better. And instead, all the focus got stolen away. A um, couple interesting moments on commentary. When, I think this must have happened when Matt, when you were saying that, uh, deranged was posing with his muscles doug said that the only drug deranged isn't doing is steroids which <laughs> i thought that was a pretty good line yeah. although also kind of ew, tug on the collar uh deranged as usual he's our boy we love deranged he does a little bit of a i love this reaction he has at one point where he just goes i didn't know we were fighting these guys why are they here why like not again like he's completely surprised that the match he has tonight and he's not happy about it like i just love he he plays like the stoner idiot character so well um and then there's a really funny interesting thing that you don't hear from gabe often uh gabe talks about how the second half of the show needed to be juggled because of the impromptu homicide trent acid match being booked and gabe says Rob is probably meeting with that fat slob that no one usually listens to anyway to rebook the show on the fly. And it was funny to hear. I think that might have been the, one of the first times that Gabe referred to himself on commentary. Obviously, he's playing a character that's not supposed to be Gabe. But it's funny to hear him refer to himself as that fat slob that no one usually listens to. That was like, I'm not, I don't think Gabe's like a super cocky guy. He doesn't come off as that. But this was like one of the first times I've seen him be really self-deprecating, maybe like almost too self-deprecating like geez go yeah. easy on yourself self-deprecation can be charming if you don't 
also mix it with horrible misogyny at the same time. <laughs> Foreshadowing. And, and yeah, actually, let's go right into that because um, oh, I guess I'll mention one thing real quick, which is just what what Joe was saying about like the slugger stuff with the legal men. Gabe's done that before, where the spe- someone has interfered with Special K. And Gabe has been like, oh, I guess we didn't know who the legal men were yet, but there's already been like eight members of Special K that have wrestled in the match. And um, that was certainly a case here. At one point after Slugger interferes, Slugger interferes again, and Gabe goes, is Slugger legal again? Like he can turn on and off being legal. (laughs) And then he talks about he needs to review Ref Hansen's job, which we continue the little jokes he makes at Ref Hansen's expense, which... That relationship will come to an ugly end. And yeah, just eh, like just kind of a mess of a match. I thought actually Jay Lethal as Hydro, this was the most confident he looked in a match yet. And um, he does much, he, he kind of doesn't fit in with Special K because he does a lot more suplex based offense. But I felt like he had some confidence in how he was executing stuff. And I also want to say that HC uh, Loke, he, uh, I feel like even though he is not like a hidden gem. I wouldn't say, oh, you got to go back and rewatch all the early HC Loke stuff. He always gives a very honest effort, I think. Like, I always come away thinking, oh, HC Loke impressed me a little bit more than I remembered. Like, nothing crazy, but there's something that impressed me a lot less than I remembered, and Matt, I think it's time to talk about it. Okay, well, it starts off Innocently enough, Gabe is doing his usual shtick about Special K and, oh, these rich kid ravers, they're spoiled, and they just use their parents' money to party, and if they do drugs, and if they just got serious. And then he quickly transitions to, like, Becky, she spends her parents' money so she can rent hotel rooms and do all these guys. Um, and then Doug goes, is that true? And Gabe goes, yes, it's true. Like, <laughs> Gabe, on the case, he's apparently a private eye, for one thing. So there you get your basic slut-shaming to start. Then, shortly thereafter, um, Becky trips just incredible. So he pulls her up onto the apron and forcibly kisses her. Now, this is, of course, a standard problematic wrestling trope that has been around in wrestling for decades, right? The male babyface forcibly kissing the female uh, second or valet, right? Not a good thing, not okay, but fairly standard in pro wrestling history, right? Gabe, yeah. Gabe's comment on this is, Becky shouldn't act upset. That's probably the 10th guy she's kissed tonight. And I just wrote, who boy, 2003. Um, so that's a, you know, rape culture, I would say, is what you describe that as, where you're basically just saying, well, she's already kissing lots of guys, so she should be okay with somebody force kissing her. Um, and Matt, I just want to get into something. You, I think you got it slightly wrong, either that or I did. It's actually, I think, worse than you think. Here's Because in my notes, I'm just looking over them. Credible early in the match, he slid under the ropes just the way you do. And then while he's on the outside, he notices Becky and forces the kiss on her. And then later is where Becky grabs his leg and he drags her by the hair. And I think at that moment, Derange runs to save her, but smashes into Becky by accident. So okay. Actually, so the Ford, the Ford, the force kiss wasn't even that standard wrestling trope. It was just a random forced kiss, it, it which is even worse. Credible yeah. found himself on the outside of the ring, noticed Becky was there. And decided to get a kiss. I see. I'll, I'll yeah. tell you, it's actually even worse than you think. <laughs> earlier, in the, earlier in the match, you can kind of see Credible making a comment outside because Special K was stalling and going over my show notes. He pretty much threatened to have his way with Becky. If Special K didn't get in the ring right there, and I'm <laughs> I'm being fairly polite in this. And keep in <laughs> mind, and keep in mind, 
Carnage crew in this case are the baby faces. Um, so, so yeah, so this is very rapey, very early. Um, bad enough. And then, like you said, later on in the match, I guess that's when they have where she trips Justin, and then he pulls her up by the hair, and which gives Gabe the opportunity to straight out call her a slut. Um, yeah. Which so he actually says that word out loud. That slut. Becky. There's no hinting. He's just saying it over and over. Yeah. So if you want to talk about slut shaming, he's literally calling her a slut and shaming her. So then after the match, um, Gabe, Doug calls Becky a slut, and I was like, No, not you too, Doug. Um, so Carnage crew drag her into the ring. Now remember, they have done this before, but now they are full baby faces. So they drag her into the ring by the hair. Incredible, he pretends to stop them from doing their spike pile driver. Um, and then like, and the, and, and the the announcers are even like, oh, why is he stopping them? The announcers are in full support of this. And then Credible does his little quick turn. He's like, no, she needs to go through a table. So. They put her down. The crowd goes even more nuts. They pull out a table. They put it at ringside. And they pile drive her, spike pile drive her, from the apron through a table on the floor. And Gabe is like, or they're, 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 they're teasing that they're going to do it. And Gabe is like, oh, it was all fun and games for a while, but I didn't know it would go this far. <laughs> like, so just for the record, actually pulling a woman by the hair and pile driving her not through a table is just fun and games, according to Gabe Sapolsky. When you get a table involved, you're going too far. So they actually when, do it. Go ahead. When Credible gra- grabbed, uh, when Credible stopped them from hi- hitting Becky at first, he, G- Gabe literally says, when did Credible get morals? Like he's disgusted at Credible stopping it. And literally just the addition of a table makes it too far. Like you can beat the crap out of this woman. But if you put her through a particle board table, well, well, ooh, like that, that's gross. Yeah, so of course they do it. Gets a giant pop. Um, dangerous uh, is the call. Um, now, I know this is 2003, um, and I know they've done bad things before, and I know we've talked about the violence against women streak. I feel like we've got, like I mentioned before, we've gotten a little bit numb to it. Well, this get, makes us feel our outrage all over again, because first of all, this is worse than ever. Like, it's just really bad. They're just, it's gleefully not only assaulting this woman, aggressively slut-shaming her, um, some sexual assault thrown in for good measure. Um, and it's just, it reminds us just how sinister this all is, the fact that it's going on every show. Because it's like, yes, it's not always this over-the-top and vile, but it always can be, if that makes sense. It always breeds this attitude that this is okay, this is cool, this is something that you do for a pop, this is something that's exciting to our audience to be done to women, and this just brings it all home. It, remind, it reminded me, at least, again, of just how vile this whole, you know, we joke about this streak. And it literally, what show is this? What episode number is this? This uh, is the 25th show, the 25th Ring of Honor show, if you're not counting Frontier of Honor and... 25th episode of the podcast. So we've seen 25 shows, 25 at, at more than 25 instances of man on woman violence. Cause some shows have had more than one, including this one. And this one brings it all back home of just how disgusting it really is. Cause this is just beyond over the top. So as, as mad as we were early on and we sort of going you know, to kind of let it become a little a bit of a joke. It's not a joke. This was really bad and it's bad that they kept doing this. And I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. And it's terrible, and it made me very uncomfortable watching it, and I um, I wish they didn't do this. Um, Joe, would you want, do you have anything to say, or should I just say something? Would, do you have uh, any thoughts about this? or 
between this and Homicide's promo, I feel like this DVD should have been recalled at some point. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I, I mean, I, if, they, if this ever goes up on, um, you know, the, the Ring of Honor, what Honor Club they call it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess this is another thing that they're going to straight up have to edit out. Uh, it's just it's just too much. Um, yeah, like I, I am passionate about this. I, I feel like I still, even though this is a different level for Ring of Honor, I'm still, I feel gross. I am a little bit numb still to some of the stuff, like like the simple act of putting a woman through a table. It's, I've seen it a bunch now. Um, I think what makes this different, going to what you said, is there's been a lot of times of like, oh, the devious woman, you know, she she interfered, she gets what's coming to her, you know, and that's that's not that's bad, that's gross, but there's levels of grossness, and I think the problem with this is with Be- the Becky Bayless character, which it's barely been developed, it feels kind of crazy to even call it a character, but the little we've seen of her, she's interfered a couple times, including in this match. But mostly, she's just this fun-loving party girl that, yeah, she likes sleeping with men. But mostly, she just she doesn't even like wrestling. She's just there because Special K are her friends, and she wants to hang out with them. And, yeah, she likes having sex. Well, that the, and, these two dork-ass announcers say that, but we haven't actually seen her do anything yeah. to that degree. But even taking them at their, at their word. Yes, true. Like, like, why are you so... Like, I always feel like when people get mad at this stuff, like, it... Nothing makes you look more like a geek than you getting angry at people for having sex. Well, this is what slut shaming is. That's where the term comes from. It's just like, it's like you're castigating women for just existing in the world, basically. Like, that's some real incel shit. Like, that idea of, oh, I'm going to be, like, bitter because someone else is having sex and having a good time. And, you know... We're not going to go into the whole thing about slut shaming, just about how it's a different standard. If a guy sleeps with a lot of women, he's a player. If a woman sleeps with a lot of men, she's something that's less than, dirty or whatever. But it, it's that anger about it. And I also think, again, with this, like, I, I really remembered why I corrected you. I really re- – because I make mistakes all the time. But what I really remembered was when Credible kissed her, when he slid under the ropes – that was before she had interfered in the match. And it's even worse with Joe telling us, which I, you don't see on the release, that he was basically talking about it before the match started. Like, this idea that you're going to not just hit a woman or grope a woman or kiss a woman, but at least if you're going to do the wrestling logic of she started it, it's still horrible, but at least there's a tiny bit of a just like a provo- provocation. It still does not justify it. To me, it's even worse when it's out of nothing. Like, she did nothing to you. She didn't even grab your leg yet. It's it's a level even worse. Like, it's a level above what we've become immune to. I would agree with that. And it, But it also, again, what the reason that I say it reminds me of just how, like, we've kind of dropped the ball with this other stuff is, like, if that's okay, the other stuff, it's only a very short, um, like, walk to this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think we have to acknowledge, though, and you did, it get it got a big pop. Like, yeah. even though we're decrying it and saying, "Oh, the Ring of Honor shouldn't have done it," yeah, it got a big reaction. Yeah, it worked for their audience, of course. And when they did, when they did the tease of Credible stopping them from hitting Becky with the pile driver, the crowd booed. Like they wanted to see this. So, and and I think that there is still an audience out there in wrestling. Having bond, gone to wrestling shows in the past, you know, recent few months or two, there is an audience out there that would still be totally fine with this. 
Um, it's not like we've changed that much. I think the promotions have, and it's good to know that our, um, you know, one of our favorite listeners, Gabe Sapolsky, no longer will do stuff like this. He has grown as a person, as I'm sure we all have, so that's a good thing. So good on you, Gabe. But it's still worth noting how terrible this was at the time. And um, that's something we've mentioned before, but I guess to finish, I would just say it's also even if you forget the social implications and all that stuff, forget that. They do it every show, 25 straight shows. Like, at what point does the shocking thing stop becoming shocking? It's very, yeah, I mean, like we've, we said it before, it's just something that they have to check off. Like, we got to yeah. get this spot in because this is our, our fans expect it, they want it, and so we got to do it. Um, I don't think that the fans wanted. I don't think the fans wanted it as badly as the the ROH bookers thought they did, though. Yeah, like it is literally on the level of a scramble. Like Gabe has to have a scramble every match, and a woman has to get attacked by a man every every show. Like it just has to happen. And but something that else that usually has to happen that's a bit more charming is Gary Michael Capetta backstage for intermission. I believe I said the last match came back for intermission. I messed up. This is intermission. And he is a standing next to what appears to be either a water fountain or urinal, I wrote. Uh, Gary has some updates for us. First, Loki fractured his jaw in Japan. He'll be out indefinitely. Amazing Red will be getting surgery on his ACL, resulting in Ring of Honor stripping the tag titles from him and AJ Styles and setting up a gauntlet match for the belts at Glory by Honor 2. So I believe that's the first on-DVD acknowledgement of that. Um, finally, Gary has an interview to conduct with the returning Briscoe brothers, who have only missed a show or two. Jay says people have been wondering where the Briscoes have been for the last few shows. Jay says they're young and not sure what they want to do yet with their lives, but for now they're focusing on the Ring of Honor tag titles. Uh, Gary runs down the Briscoes' matches tonight, and he's wrapping up when the SAT walk-in angry at the Briscoes for targeting Red's knee during their last match they had with uh, the Briscoes versus AJ and Red. Um, they said, you know, that, that that that's not cool, man. That was his weak point. And I just wrote in my notes, it's a fucking wrestling match. Like, the SET are so mad they went after a body part. Uh, the SETs say, I thought we were boys, man. And Mark says, they are boys, but they do what they have to do to win, try and win wrestling matches. So they're teasing a SAT Briscoes match or feud, which will be paid off at the final battle 2003 pre-show. It won't make the actual show. But, um, um, I, there are a few guys that you watch like their promos from back then and now and you see more of a difference than the Briscoes. Like, obviously, the Briscoes were young, but I think there's a much bigger difference between their promo skills now and then than their wrestling skills, even. Um, they were just, obviously, so young and uncomfortable on the mic, and now, you know, they're just, like, they're dynamic on the mic. It's it's really interesting to watch. Yeah, they were naturals in the ring. They were not naturals out of the ring. They had to earn the out of the ring stuff. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Watching the Briscoes, I'm like, man, this is terrible. And then the SAT <laughs> takes it to a whole other level. I'm like, oh, man. That yes. Was, I wonder if they put them in there so the Briscoes wouldn't look as bad in comparison. Because this was this was a putrid uh, interview section. Yeah. I didn't hate it as much as you guys. But I knew, like, even Matt, like, sometimes Matt or me will shoot comments back and forth while we're, like, over the time between episodes when we're watching shows. And, like, Matt went out of his way, I believe, to, like, tell me, like, boy, the Briscoes have come a long way from their promos. Like, right after, must have been right after watching yep. this segment. 
So now we come back from a division. Mark Briscoe defeats BJ Whitmer via pinfall in 13 minutes, 58 seconds after he hits a Uranagi superplex. I thought this was surprisingly good. Um, like, like a high good. Like I thought this was the first, this was my favorite match so far on the show easily, even though the, the, the scramble was good. And there's not a ton in a lot of ways that's, in some ways that's special about in the sense that there's not a great story. Although I think BJ does a a fairly good job working over Mark Briscoe's ribs. He has some good offense that's focused on it. Like, um, he does the gourd buster on the ropes. He does the gourd buster on the, on the guardrail. He does a nice, neat little like stomach breaker and he just outright kicks Mark in the ribs. And, but like, there's not some great, like, unique thing that makes this match good i think it's just we're seeing in ring of honor in recent shows a lot of undercard matches that are kind of like the two field of honor matches tonight they're fine they're not it doesn't feel like they're like shitting on the fans but they're not going all out like this match felt like they were trying to have the best possible match they could and it didn't matter that they were middle of the card first match after intermission um especially in the second half of the match i felt just in terms of their intensity how hard BJ was hitting Mark, um, the moves they were doing. Like, Mark was out, was not crazy Mark Briscoe in terms of character in this match, but he was crazy Mark Briscoe in terms of, like, he does a shooting star press to the floor. He takes a hip toss over the top rope to the outside of the ring. Like, he's taking these big bumps for a largely meaningless thrown-together match with BJ Whitmer. Um and again, even the ending is 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 a friggin' Uranagi superplex. So, I think if you watch this in a vacuum, you would be just be like, it's just your standard indie match where they're throwing out big moves at the end, and yeah, they're working hard, but there's not there's not a ton that really colors it. But I just feel like I've watched enough Ring of Honor mid card matches lately where this this felt like a, a level of effort above those, even if it wasn't like something special. Matt, I know you feel a little bit different about this. Do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, I mean, the only, the main difference is just, like, I didn't like the first half of the match. I thought it was kind of like, I don't know, there's just something wasn't connecting. Um, I, you know, I thought it was funny the way that they were telegraphing Briscoe winning. Like, they were like, oh, you know, the odds are against Mark Briscoe here. Uh, Briscoe's not going to win. Like, Gabe just really, really, really telegraphed it. The name of the show is Beating the Odds. And, you know, this is the first time you really start hearing about this because they talk about how Briscoe might have to beat the odds or like it would be really hard for him to beat the odds. And of course, he does beat the odds. He wins. And you could tell that just from listening to the promos on the I mean, the commentary in the first couple minutes of the match. I thought the last half of the match was actually quite good. You know, Briscoe's big moves were really connecting. You know, the shooting star press, the the Uranagi, and the crowd was not into it early. Then slowly they started doing the dueling chants. Then slowly they got really into all the near falls and everything, and they really liked the match. And that's always, I think, a sign of a uh, a good effort, at least for the live crowd, where they get this crowd who's not excited to become excited. And... Um, you know, I like the way they they got up to the uh, um, to the finish where you know Mark missed a moonsault, but he landed on his feet and Whitmer hit an exploder and he got went up to the top rope and then he kept pushing Mark off the top rope until Mark just did like the, that run until he Mark did like a run up Uranagi, um, and I just and then you know I really like you know then 
how they just they built up to that and the crowd really got into it. I thought it was a really good showcase for Mark. I don't think Whitmer looked great, honestly. But Mark looked really good and the crowd really liked it. Um, I, I thought that BJ just kind of felt like he was along for the ride. That sort of was would be my main critique of the match. Well, good thing he's not going to the finals of some hyped-up tournament or anything. Uh, Joe, what, what did you think? Yeah, the longer this went, the better it got. And I mean, they kept saying how it would be almost a monumental upset if Mark Briscoe beat BJ Whitmer, which I know the original opponent was Loki, and that would have been a huge upset. It doesn't seem like they're drastically not on the, the, the same level, at least to the to the uh, level they were trying to portray on commentary. But the longer this went, the better it got. I mean, it was a lot different from the usual post-intermission match, which is usually short, fairly short, Have maybe have local wrestlers or undercard, something quick, when everyone's coming back from intermission. This was much longer. And, uh, yeah, the longer it went, the more entertaining it got. And, um, yeah, it was a good showcase for... uh, He beat the odds. Like, he'd have to beat the odds if he wins this match, and uh, he did. So they earned that show title there with this one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I agree with both you guys. It's crazy how much Gabe tried. You know, it's classic Gabe telegraphing, which is kind of charming and kind of infuriating on commentary. But like, it made me sit down and think. Like, Marks had three tag title matches where, where which were all closely contested. He beat Jay Briscoe, who had a feud for the title with um, Xavier. Is he that much like lower than BJ Whitmer in two thousand three? I think you might be above BJ Whitmer, but yeah, for the purposes of selling this match, this is apparently like a Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson level upset. I'll push back on that a little bit. They've clearly portrayed Whitmer as like a big deal. I think for the past few shows, you know, he got the title yeah, shot. He won the, he won the, uh, you know, he won the, um, the four corner match. I was like the standout match. Mark had that one, you know, they had that well, the Briscoes had that one series of tag team matches, but his only singles match was against his brother, and, you know, they really haven't been around much. So I actually, I do think this is an elevating match, but, you know, I don't think it's quite what they hyped it up to be. There were a couple interesting things on commentary. One was Gabe was really trying to sell the Briscoes as better than ever because now they're committed to wrestling. So I, I, that's another Gabe trope, which is when guys come back, he tries to sell, find an angle to sell them as really refreshed or better than ever. And even though they only missed like a couple shows, like Gabe's using this idea of before they were kind of not knowing what they wanted to do with their lives and now they're dedicated to Ring of Honor. So they're going to be really good and we're going to see they're going to get a push, out, uh, like the biggest push they've had yet out of it. Then the the other commentary thing that really made me laugh was uh, Gabe says B.J. Whitmer is like a horse. He keeps the last few shows comparing B.J. Whitmer favorably to a horse. This will pay off on the next show where CM Punk will be on commentary and like call that out. But anyway, on this show, Gabe says that B.J. Whitmer is like a horse. He can take any amount of abuse and keep coming back. And I just wrote in my notes, does Gabe think horses are invincible? Because <laughs> apparently he thinks that's the quality of a horse is you can take any amount of abuse and not stop. Apparently, Maybe Gabe had a horse growing up and he just used to like punch it. <laughs> horses they're, they're they're just invincible yeah like they never get made into glue but um we go backstage to a much more wooden less chicken parmed up rob feinstein who is backstage telling us that ring of honor's investigation into who attacked lucy has not worked believe it or not ring of honor could not solve this case and they are now asking you 
the fans to send any leads you have to ringofhonorwrestling.com. If you listen to the show and actually sent them a lead back in the day, please tell me what lead you sent them. If this was like when Leslie Nielsen had to search for The Undertaker, just let me know. This is one of the great mysteries of our time. I wrote, Rob is way more natural and charismatic when he's talking about chicken parm. Do you remember when they had, like, before the Leslie Nielsen thing, when they had those Undertaker videos, um, where, like, where, where's the Undertaker? And they had the kid who was like, I saw him slide down the slide. <laughs> so... That kid was the ones like yeah he was at my deli like yeah. just like, stuff yeah. like that. so that kid's nine years older and maybe he knows who attacked Lucy that's all I'm saying <laughs> that kid is, and that kid's name is Encyclopedia Brown <laughs> I just like the idea that like someone was backstage and saw Lucy get like assaulted with a crowbar or something and they're like ah no need to tell anyone they'll figure this out yeah and then they're like oh I better better do something now. <laughs> I, I, you also like it's amazing to think that like yeah like Joe's thing just reminded me it ha- Lucy's attack happened backstage at a Ring of Honor show and was caught by cameras and they've done an investigation you would think Ring of Honor would have access better than anybody to everyone backstage at a Ring of Honor show and now they're like well we couldn't figure anything out how about you random fans around the world like do you know what happened it's like I don't think that me in British Columbia, Canada, is going to be able to solve this. If you, <laughs> owner of the promotion where this happened, can, has interviewed witnesses and can't figure this out, but um, yeah, I just it was a very earnest kind of weird way to continue that, but <laughs> angle. Um, next up, we get something completely different: Homicide defeats Trent Acid via pinfall in 14 minutes, 33 seconds, after he hits a kudo driver. They can't call it a cop killer because Homicide's probation officer will get mad. Um, Joe, this was pretty crazy. What was it like live? <laughs> oh, this was uh, my show notes. This is my favorite match of the night. and I, <laughs> I'm such a bad wrestling fan, like all these well-worked matches i'm like boring but guys are legit concussing each other i'm like hell yeah sign me up <laughs> but um yeah i know this match was i mean just a lot of you, you know you'll see like you know if they do like i don't an apron spot on nxt they'll still try to set it up for it to be as safe as possible but at one point like uh trent goes for like you know an acai moonsault and homicide just catches him and just kind of throws him back and trent kind of has to kind of twist and kind of hit the guardrail it's just like like really unsafe at points, but also super exciting. So it, you know, if you can get over the first part, you'll you'll really enjoy this match. Yeah, um, I, I I felt guilty for liking this match as much as I did. This was my favorite match of the night as well. But I feel like as a match, there's a metric ton of things you can complain about. I feel like I'm more gritting it as a spectacle. This is an amazing spectacle. It's just almost all crazy things right from the start. And I have rarely seen two wrestlers in my life who seem to have so little disregard for protecting the other as Trent Acid and Homicide. Like, they don't seem to give a shit uh, about, like, like there's things where I'm, I watch and I go, that looks like they, that was exactly what they intended to do, and it's the most dangerous thing you could do to your opponent. Like, just insane things um both guys get screwed up in this match homicide in an rf video shoot interview 
said that they had he he preferred the other match they had to this one because he said they had to change like come up with a new finish on the fly for this match because they were both so they hurt each other so badly for legit in this match that they forgot the finish so they just had to start improvising um there was just so many crazy things to this. Um, Acid did a scary inverted-looking suplex to the floor on Homicide on that hardwood hardwood floor. There's the springboard where Homicide just grabs him and throws him. Um, there's Homicide does the tope con hilo to Trent sitting in a chair, which he's done to people before. But Homicide hits Trent, and Trent and the chair barely move. Like, I don't know what laws of physics were working there. It was really weird. Um... Homicide hits a running knee to Trent in the corner, and this is where Trent gets hurt. Cashmere immediately, who's at ringside, asks Trent how he's doing, and immediately Cashmere has a message for the ref. So Trent must have told him something, and the, you can see the ref immediately relay it to Homicide. Like, they basically play a game of telephone right in front of you. Um, Trent's bleeding from the eye as a result of this. Homicide, like, backs off and lets him recover a little bit. And then a little bit later... Um, I think it's Trent just hauls off and hits homicide and breaks his nose. Like blood's leaking out of it like a faucet. Uh, just brutal. And I'm not even talking, you know what? Those weren't even, those were the spots that got hurt on. Those weren't even the brutal, brutalist spots. The brutalist spot was at one point Trent has, has, has put an open chair in the ring and homicide sitting on the top rope. And, Trent goes and grabs him like under the armpits, like he's going to do maybe like Seema's iconoclasm type move where he kind of flips the guy over by the armpits into a slam. But instead, it basically homicide never rotates. And so what looked like was being meant to be an iconoclasm turns into Trent lawn darting homicide off the top rope onto an open chair, and homicide catches the lip of the chair. He doesn't catch it flush. And I was shocked, like, that he was alive after this. It was, it was, I was uncomfortable with how entertained I was by all of this. There was just insane thing after insane thing. It did kind of lose its way in the second half of the match, maybe because they were screwed up. There was interference from Smokes and Cashmere. Um, they did try and play off their last match, which had the horrible out-of-nowhere Trent roll-up. They had that happen here and Homicide kick out. So they did actually have a little bit of psychology. But this was just in- insane. It was two people that are not very nice to each other. Um, Matt, what did you think? Well, you guys you know, pretty much said it all already. Um I guess the one thing I would disagree with is I don't think it lost its way in the second half. I think it got better in the second half. Um, Like, after the real bad stuff, like, after they really hurt each other, like, that's when they sort of started doing, like, the near falls and, you know, all the crazy stuff, you know. know, First of all, the match, if this match happened now, it would have been stopped, like, halfway through. As soon as... As soon as Acid got back in the ring after he got concussed and his eye got busted open, for one thing, Gabe, you know, did his Gabe thing where he's like, oh, that must have hit him right in the eye. And then you see that he's selling his eye and he's bleeding from the eye. Um, But as soon as Acid gets back in the ring, they do a series of spots like in the corner and like a swinging DDT. And you could tell that Trent is totally out of it. And he's like, and the match would have been stopped, I think, if that had happened now. But... 
Trent eventually gets his bearings again, and they just go balls to the walls crazy. And, you know, after Homicide gets hurt, and they're like, I think Homicide is knocked out, and I write this match as a car wreck. Then Homicide hits the top rope ace, top rope ace crusher. Then he covers, uh, Kashmir pulls out the ref, Smoke chases Kashmir, and Trent clothesline Smokes. Then Homicide chases Kashmir into the ring, and Trent hits a Yakuza kick for two, which is a great spot. But two guys fall for the same trick, like one immediately after the other. I thought that was kind of ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so I have, and then, like, you know, they're still just, they're trading moves. Um, uh, Trent, uh, he escapes the cop killer, goes for the roll up. And then he hits a um, oh he hits a, he gets a sleeper, but Homicide gets a low blow and struggles to get Trent up. And like like the fact that he had to struggle to get Trent up for the cop killer and finally got it made it more dramatic. The match it was a mess, it was a disaster, and I still think if this match had occurred now, if they were actually allowed to finish the match, which I hope they wouldn't be. Uh, people would still love this match. It was super entertaining and crazy and dangerous and terrible and great like it was i i i don't know i just it's it was a match that you don't really get to see and they went balls out and um you know i i think they actually could have done this match a little bit more safely if they had a little more regard a lot of the same spots just done a little bit safer but i actually think the way the match was laid out purposefully or not was pretty good i don't think it was just like a an entertaining mess i actually think there was like actual good qualities to it you just wish they were professionals about it instead of just literally not caring if they permanently scarred each other. G- Gabe called this the most underrated feud of 2003. I don't know if I would go that far because the storyline in Ring of Honor, at least for this feud, has been wavered between like very thin to non-existent. Right. But the the two matches, I mean, some people will hate them. Some people will love them. I feel like they don't get talked about as much just because whether you love or hate them, they're crazy in a way that almost everything else in Ring of Honor was not. Yeah, you don't point. you don't see any other matches like this in ROH, like with this particular kind of chemistry that these two had. Um, you know, and that they're unique matches in wrestling history. And you're right, people, whether they liked it or not, whether they think it was acceptable or not, behavior for the two guys, you got to acknowledge that these matches are different and exciting and interesting and even just going to homicide like his last ring of honor show was bitter friends different enemies i don't know if a guy has had two consecutive matches for one promotion this violent in different ways too like the the credo match is just brutal homicide is bleeding like literal puddles of blood under his head and then he goes and does this match and breaks his nose well lots of Lots of people back then were saying Homicide was like one of the best wrestlers of that year. And obviously his matches were not always good in the conventional sense. You know what I mean? Uh, there was a sloppiness to some of them, a dangerousness to some of them. But that's also part of what made him stand out. And you certainly can't say that his matches didn't get over and weren't dynamic. This was a show stealer, whatever you think of it. His match last month was a show stealer. His match at Death Before Dishonor was a show stealer. Wrestle Rave, it was the main event, so I don't know if you could quite call that a show stealer, but it certainly was the standout. He is the guy who's having the most memorable match on all these shows. It's, you know, I think we can confirm that now. So he's having a hell of a year, whatever you think of the types of matches he's having. And apart from maybe one match like with Chris Saban that he had to work later in the night, I think Homicide always gives you, like, over and above level effort, no matter what he's involved in. 
Yeah, like it's at a, this point, it's amazing that he wasn't more injured this year. <laughs> yeah. And the only thing I forgot was at the start of the match, they immediately cut to a backstage Raven promo. And Doug was saying that Raven wants more interview time. And all Raven does is inhale a lot, super loud, and just say, punk, I'm going to kill you. And that's it. And I'll just note, without saying anything else, Raven was loudly doing a lot of sniffling tonight in his promos. That, that, that's all I'm going to say. Just the, maybe he had a cold, lots of sniffling uh, on this night. Um, it felt, it honestly, it felt like an intentional affectation to me, but it, it, it might, it might've been, it was, it was, a, I'll just say it was weird enough to be noticeable, whether he was doing it purposely or not. Either he had a cold or he was doing it, like you said, for an affectation or he was indulging in something. I don't know. It was, it was just weird. It was noticeable. Um, after the match, everyone shakes hands, which seems kind of weird given the insane things he was calling Trent and telling Rob to fire Trent like a couple hours earlier. This was now not shaking. This was not a fight without honor. Yeah, they they were shaking hands, uh, and then a bloody homicide sticks his face into the camera and says, "I'll be back." And that's our homicide for tonight. Next, we have a pre-taped backstage promo somewhere that is not here with Christopher Daniels and Allison Danger. Danger is holding the ECWA title for Daniels. Daniels talks about how it's his destiny to become Ring of Honor champion, but he's not in Boston tonight because he's elsewhere fulfilling another part of his destiny, noting that he's held the ECWA title since January and he's beat the likes of Paul London, Chance Beckett, and Low Key. Daniel says tonight he's defending the ECWA belt with pride while the Ring of Honor title is in his future. Daniel says he'll be the next Ring of Honor champion, and that's not the gospel for once. That's destiny. And I just thought it was pretty interesting that um, they really, like, they outright said, like, Daniels is working an ECWA show tonight over this Ring of Honor show, which isn't the kind of thing Ring of Honor did often. And they, they even acknowledged he beat Loki, which in the world of Ring of Honor... He hasn't done like in a singles match yet, and it was, so it was kind of interesting that they went that far. And um, Gabe tries to play it off as a heel move later on commentary. He says something like, "Daniel sent in that tape from ECWA in Delaware tonight to like rub it into, like the nerve of him to rub it in like that." And the match, I looked it up. Daniels was d- successfully defended on this night in Delaware against Mike Cruel. So that's what he did instead of Ring of Honor tonight. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have anything to say about that, but I thought it was just an interesting, different kind of thing. Yeah, they always... I don't know if they worked with ECWA. When they used to do bonus matches on DVDs, I remember one from... Uh, I think one of the Super 8s, Xavier and AJ Styles was on there. So it seems they were fairly close. I don't know if they were closely aligned, but they had a decent working relationship with them. So it's probably not too surprising. And I mean, they may not have known when Loki or if Loki was coming back so they probably didn't mind him dropping that reference to it anyway it shows you the strong bonds ECWA maybe had with uh, Daniels because it was very rare even this early on that you'd see an indie wrestler like um, miss a Ring of Honor show if they didn't have a commitment with either Japan or, or signing with WWE mm. so to, say, to, to have ECWA and outright say like yeah I'm in Delaware tonight you know, I found that interesting but Something I found less interesting was the Ring of Honor World Title Number One Contendership Four Corner Survival Match, our semi-main event, 
Jay Briscoe defeated AJ Styles and Chris Sabin and Samoa Joe in 21 minutes, 15 seconds when he pinned Sabin after hitting the J Driller. Uh, I'll get into my thoughts on the match. First couple things I note, though, is Joe is wearing a weird blue and white pattern gear here that looks like um, maybe my shower curtains. And and Doug actually has to say, point out the reason why he's wearing this like weird flowery pattern gear or Gabe says is that he's got an inside word from Gary Capetta that all of Joe's other ring gear is dirty and at the laundromat so that was interesting um Gabe says this match could be a main event on any show uh I would disagree with that Saban is replacing Homicide here obviously because Homicide for forewent his uh title match opportunity here to and uh, Gabe says Saban was originally supposed to wrestle Oman Tortuga tonight which would have been a hell of a showcase for Chris Saban probably and um, Gabe also does an interesting thing here with when he talks about the four corner match he uh, he says the winner of this match will get a ring of honor title shot but to explain Joe's involvement he says if Joe wins whoever he pins or submits will never get a title shot with Joe ever again so I felt like that was an interesting way to have the the world champion in a four you know number one contenders match and still have a stake for it. I thought that was an interesting piece of booking. But for this match, I am just going to say this: I've ranted a lot about four corner matches why I don't like them. This match crystallized and kind of really made me realize exactly why I don't like most four corner matches. There are two ways four corner matches can be fun to me. They can be either all-out craziness where you take advantage of the fact that there's four guys and you just have it almost like a scramble where guys are coming in and out. No one has to pace themselves for stamina. No one has to worry about kicking out of a, of a move that's too big to kick out of because someone can run in and break it up. And you just have crazy action from minute to minute. That's one way four ways can work. The other way four ways can work is if you really pre-plan the match with a meticulous story like crowning a champion. 60 minutes, there was a real tight pre-booked story in that match. Most four ways, some, there's a fair bit of four ways that are the spot fist. There aren't a lot that are the meticulously story booked. And there's a lot of four ways like this match, which is, it is literally four guys There's getting tagged in, thinking for a minute or two, oh, I shit, I got a minute or two in here, I got to think of something to do. Kind of just doing something and tagging out, and the next guy... And the match never gets any flow build up. It's really talented guys, but it's always just a lot of times it's just guys killing time. And when two guys start to feel like maybe they're starting to build up some momentum, it's time for one of them to tag out. It's like it's like these four ways are like speed dating where every two minutes it's a new date. And even if if it's a good date, it has to end immediately. So that sucks. And if it's a bad date, it's a bad date because it's rushed. So it's the worst of both worlds. And even though as a total match, it was average to have AJ Styles and Samoa Joe and Chris Saban and Jay Briscoe. And this is the best you can get out of them on this night. Like what a, what a waste. And Matt, like, am I being too hard on this? I probably am. But. Well, you're, well, you're being too hard on speed dating. I will say that. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, but I, well, Honestly, um, I have to admit, I liked this match, like, a lot more than you did. Like, I didn't think it was a great match, 
but I thought it was good. Like, I thought this was a good match. I um, I liked the story they told. I didn't like how much Gabe telegraphed the Jay thing. Like, after Mark, you could pretty much see what they're doing here. And then, like, they even go more overboard. Jay has no chance of winning this match. The odds are against him. And Jay takes a lot of punishment here. And I thought that was the story of the match. Like, he was taking the punishment. He kept coming back. Everyone was working him over. You know, Joe in particular, I thought, was really brutal with, like, some of, that, some of the moves. Like, his crazy Boston Crab that he did. Um, but once they got down the stretch and, like, Joe was doing the ole ole kick and Jay hit a somersault dive onto everybody and they were doing 450s on each other and Saban hit the future shock and the crowd was really starting to get with it. And I, and I really enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I didn't think that they were trying to light the world on fire, but I thought as far as these four ways went, I thought it was a pretty good version of it. Um, uh, I will say this. Um, there was one spot where AJ went for a 450 on Joe, but he slipped, and he sort of hit Joe's leg, and the crowd started chanting, you fucked up, and then loudly another res- a response chant saying, shut the fuck up, uh, came back. So it's already still that ROH crowd policing each other kind of thing going yeah. on there, um, but AJ kind of landed on his head when he did it. Um, um, but I, I just, you know, I liked it. I liked, um, you know, Saban went for a run. I, Saban went for a Rana. AJ tried to turn into a Styles Clash, but Saban reversed that. Uh, but AJ eventually hit the Styles Clash. Joe broke that up, and then um, everyone knocked everyone else down. Uh, Joe and AJ hit Enziguri's on each other simultaneously. I thought that was a pretty cool spot. Like a lot of these four-way matches are all about these like high-spot finishing sequences, and I thought they did a good job. And then Jay hit the J Driller on Saban, and he got the win. And of course, he quote beat the odds. Um, I didn't like the telegraphing, but I really thought this match was a lot better than you did. Um, the, I don't know. Maybe I'm just more amenable to this style. Joe, I think I'm going to be the odd man out here, but what did you think of this match? Yeah, this this was pretty good. They told a good story throughout with Jay getting pummeled throughout. I, I, I like the steps because one of my problems with you know these one fall four waves is people just randomly tagging in and out. You know, where If you're not in the match, you can't win. Especially when we started with a number one contenders match, there really wasn't a reason not to be in the ring. But with this, there were stakes. If you know, if you got pinned by Samoa Joe, you'd never get a title shot. So I could see people trying to, you know, work their way in and out of the match. I like that. Uh, AJ Styles had a really off night. And besides the the four fifty, he screwed up. Some stuff just didn't look good for him. So he kind of. Yeah, he screwed up even like the moonsault into the reverse DDT. For some reason, him and Joe didn't really work together well together on this night. That's where I noticed a lot of his kind of weirdness yeah he had trouble i think with saban and uh i think i've rolled at some point earlier in the match but it was funny to hear them say hey aj and uh Samoa joe that'd be a match to see and it's like sure 15 years later at SummerSlam, <laughs> we can uh we can check that out a very different match today than it was back then the sort of stuff yeah. that they would do with each other yeah and- aj wasn't married yet i don't think so <laughs> Um, I, I, I love yeah. the I love the idea. Like we need to uh, create this very dramatic soap opera uh, intrigue in a storyline. What two wrestlers would be perfect for this? I know, <laughs> AJ Styles and Samoa Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I did I didn't hate this match. I did think there were cool moments. Like there's Joe's going for the second Ole kick on AJ, and then Saban comes out of nowhere and spears him mid charge into the guardrail. You know, that, those moments were awesome. Um, I thought this was the best Saban has looked in ROH, for whatever that's worth. 
and and I'll say this: this match also though showed reminded me of why these four corner matches are a Booker's dream. Because in this match, you can say, "Oh, AJ and and Joe are going to be in the same ring together," and that's something Gabe was really hyping. Like Joe said about how cool that would be to see them in a match, and how cool it is that right now it's the Ring of Honor champion and the NWA World Champion in the same ring together. But you weren't giving away any singles matches here, and even um Jay Briscoe. He gets to be the number one contender and kind of beat Joe in a match, but he hasn't actually beaten Joe yet. In fact, the only guy he's pinned in this match is is, is Chris Saban. So the four corner matches, I think they're bad in terms of fun wrestling, but for booking, it's such an easy way to create contenders. It's also big, it's it's also an easy way to put off giving away singles matches. Like Yeah, you you can hype that big names will be facing each other without giving away the matches. Yeah, and I, I will say one thing about the stipulation. If I was a wrestler and I had a, cho- a chance to get into a match, like if you win, you're a number one contender, but if you lose, you can never get a title shot at this champion. I probably would think twice about entering that match. Yeah, yeah I mean, especially... Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I would definitely say that. You know what was also weird here is, again, like going to what you said, Matt, about Gabe really telegraphing... Um, the Jay Briscoe thing, which was, he said early on, Jay has no shot in this match. Why does he think Chris Saban has a shot? Right. Like, like he never acts like Chris Saban has no shot. Jay Briscoe's had a world title match before. That's right. That's right. Yeah. For this one, I'd say you like, I disagreed with you a little bit about the BJ thing, yeah. but Saban is definitely lower on the totem pole than yeah. Jay for sure. But for the purposes of this match, Jay has to be clearly the underdog of all four. Yeah. But... Next, we have clips of a ringside Q&A session Gary Michael Capetta did with Just Incredible as they set up the cage for the main event. So, um, I don't, Joe, I don't know if you got to ask a lovely question here to your hero, Just Incredible. We, um, we see part of the Q&A here. The house mic sounds awful. It's loud, but so mu- there's so much echo you can barely make anything out. I did get to hear a question, such great questions as, did Brett really fuck Sonny? Uh, Justin says yes, but then admits he doesn't know and just wanted to say what the people wanted to hear. Um, Soon after this, during the Q&A, Special K attack, and you can hear one fan loudly yell, I didn't get to ask my question! (laughs) And uh, um, the Carnage crew come up to defend Justin, but they get attacked by Special K as well. The fan keeps yelling that he didn't get to ask a question over and over again during this. Um, Special K start whipping the Carnage crew with a belt, which is probably like the most violent, like severe thing they've done in Ring of Honor. And Special K leave, and an angry DeVito slams a chair against the railing. Yeah, this was this was different, I guess. Was this guy about the you know complaining about asking the question? Was this a plant, or is this just like a guy being a goofball in the crowd? I can't tell. I, I think I think it was a guy being a smartass because he kept saying that over and over again during yeah. the thing. I didn't get to ask my question. Hey, I, I had a question like over and over, like really loudly. Like he must have yeah. been the first couple rows and. Yes, that was kind of a douchey thing, but um, let me just keep going. Finally, main event. And even I forget what the order is, but I'm going to let Joe start this one because he said he had some things to say about this. We have a Clockwork Orange House of Fun steel cage match. 
Raven defeats CM Punk. He finally beats Raven, I mean, Punk and ROH, in what, 11 minutes, 53 seconds, at least on the DVD. I, in the Observer claimed live this was 31 minutes after Raven hits a Raven Effect DDT off the second turnbuckle through a table on Punk. Um, Jody, was this longer than uh, 12 minutes live? Yes, this was in the, the half-hour range live. Oh, boy. So, so I'm, I'm actually just curious about your guys' thoughts before okay, I, I go well, in. Okay. Um, Matt, how about you give your thoughts first? Well, you know, it's interesting because I'd never watched this match before, and I've heard a lot about it, you know, obviously, because it was uh, considered kind of a disaster, right? And they edited a lot out. And I have to say, they did a pretty good job editing it. Like, I didn't watch this match thinking that this was a great main event, but I did watch it thinking this wasn't that bad. You know, it wasn't certainly the epic blow-off of a feud that you'd want, and obviously it didn't turn out to be. But it didn't come off as terrible. It came off as choppy and weird, like just like they moved. Like, you know, you couldn't tell what happened when, what the real pacing was. You know, that was a problem. You know, there were, like, weapons on the cage at the beginning, and then suddenly they weren't on the cage, like the kitchen sink. Clearly that was used at some point, but I didn't see it get used, you know, things like that. Um, Punk as always, juice-like almost immediately in terms of what they showed. And his blood was gushing like crazy. I feel like this might have been his worst blade job yet. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. But it was, it was intense. Cabana was at ringside for some reason. And his, like, his shirt seemed to have stains on it. Like, I was like, did he throw up on that shirt? Like, I, I but anyway. All the pus from his rash. <laughs> yeah, it was just, like seeping through. I mean, that, on, honestly, maybe. Um, maybe it was like ointment or something had to apply to it. I yeah, don't know. yeah. Did you notice that too? I didn't notice that, but like, that would be a weird coincidence if it didn't have something to do. Like, why would you show up with a stained t-shirt? Yeah, it was weird. this rash. Yeah, so, but like, uh, Punk, bro- I mean, again, when I say things happened early in the match, I don't know actually how early they happened. But like, early on what we see, Raven gets cuffed to the ropes by Punk, and then Punk was attacking Raven with like the handle of a shovel, and I was like, why just the handle? Seems like you, you have a whole shovel and you're just hitting him with the handle. <laughs> It's like Triple H with his sledgehammer, right? Where he puts his hand on the front and just kind of pokes him with it instead of actually, like, swinging the sledgehammer. Um, but, you know, but like, and Punk is just wailing Raven while he's cuffed. Um, like, you know, just this is, like, perfectly good stuff. It seems, like, obviously rushed. Um, uh, Raven grabbed the keys and uncuffed himself, and then he hit the Raven effect, and Cabana broke that up by throwing a chair at the ref. So... I was like, why wasn't the cage door locked? What's the point of having a steel cage match? I mean, not that this is like the only steel cage match where this is a problem, but they had a steel cage, they had a door, and the door was just open, and the guy's friend was at ringside? Like, that's stupid, obviously. Um, yeah. But um, threw a chair at the ref, and then he slammed the door on Raven, and Punk hit the DDT for two, and so another ref came and latched the door. You'd think they would have done that in the first place. Um and so Raven blocked the chair drop toehold, threw the chair at Punk's head for two. Uh, Raven hit Punk and Cabana with an extra heavy steel chair. I thought that was funny. It's like, that's not just a normal steel chair. That's an extra heavy steel chair. It's like, why don't that's they... heavy people. Why don't they always have the extra heavy steel chair? Why, why, just, why are they just breaking that out here? Um, and so Punk got Raven on a table, because they did have tables in the ring. And um, goes off the top of the cage. Raven followed him up. They're fighting off the top. Raven slammed Punk's head. 
and Punk falls through the table. He um, and just got a two count, and so Raven sets up another table. Hit the top rope, Raven effect. Dangerous, obviously. Dangerous cha- uh, call, and he gets the win. So, like, this match, you know, it was just very by the numbers what you'd expect from a brawl like this. I imagine in real life it was anything but by the numbers. So the editing job to make it seem respectable was, I think, good. As for the match itself, it was just too weirdly edited to say how good it was. But it wasn't terrible. It wasn't boring. It was fine. It was just anticlimactic, I guess, a little bit, and just it just felt weird. So I'm very curious to hear what this match really was. So um, I guess since Joe wanted both our thoughts, I'll I have some thoughts and I have some kind of behind the scenes stuff, and then Joe gets to be the big main event here. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of agree and disagree with you, Matt. Um, I felt like in some ways, I, I think I'm I'm less. I'm more down this match than you. I thought it was a mess and below average. I feel like the editing in some ways was good and in some ways was bad. Like, when I watched the editing of this, I didn't feel like I was... Like, I felt like I was watching the best things they had. But at the same time, it did feel super choppy. But going to your point, I don't know how you can edit 19 minutes out of a 31-minute match and not have it feel choppy. But... Like it, it's definitely notice. Like very, it flow. It really threw off my sense of flow. But I never felt. I I felt like watching this. Like oh, this these were probably the most notable parts of the match. I didn't feel. I felt. You know, and I can't know for sure. Well, Joe can help help us. But the thing I I really didn't like about this match, though, other than the editing, was it was just all. It felt like the worst of ECW, where the whole thing was about chair shot. It was about weapons. It was just one guy sit there, wait for the other guy to hit him a bunch with weapons. Other guy gets a weapon, waits to hit him with weapons. Like, the whole match was about plunder. This was the first cage match Ring of Honor ever had. And apart from the spot where they climbed to the top of the cage, there were barely that many cage spots. And the match, as you mentioned, it commits like the cardinal rule of cage matches, which is you shouldn't have freaking outside interference in a cage match. And I guess they felt like maybe it was all right because they knew Raven was going to win in the end. But the fact that like Colt Cabana breaks up a key pin where I think Raven hits the Raven DDT and he just, Oh, I can open the door and throw it. Like ring of honors. I was yeah, say, go or if there is outside interference, it should be cleverly done. Like somebody else should have to work to interfere. It shouldn't just be like this is just as easy as it is to interfere in any other match. You know? Yeah. If oh, like someone forgot to lock the door. Yeah. And Cole just and, and Ring of Honor is a kind that seems to be better at this point about sticking, like making things make sense. But this was something where this is just like booking one hundred and one, where a cage match should all be about the two guys in the ring, but. I guess they felt like, hey, it's one more spot. It, it lets us break up a big pinfall. You know, Raven can hit his DDT, and the match can go on. But I, um, this was a match where I noticed on the last match, like the Trent homicide match. I forgot to say in my notes, I felt almost mad at the crowd that they weren't reacting that much for how violent it was. I felt this match. There were times during this match where it was eerily quiet for a match so full of weapons. Like they're not not reacting all the time, but there are times where they are not into it. And something that um, it was said in the Observer and Punk talked about were apparently the weapons in this match, the weapon shots really, really hurt, but they didn't sound like they hurt. Um, Punk's in the shooter view that like 
his whole face after the match felt like a bruise and he had lumps on his head and he had a knot in his stomach from blood loss. But it was like the people wouldn't react to all these weapon shots because they didn't make any sound. Like huh. it was the worst possible way you could get at weapon shots. You know, you want like the cookie sheet where it makes a really loud sound, but it doesn't hurt. This was the opposite. Apparently, apparently like, um, Punk said there was some shot with something that it caught, like, the lip of a chair. Like, I think he said Raven went to him with a chair, and just the lip of the chair caught him. And he said that really hurt. And also, there's a really stupid sequence in the middle of this match where Raven is handcuffed to the ropes by Punk, and Punk tries to attack him, and Raven fights him off while he's handcuffed to the ropes, but Punk keeps trying to fight Raven, and Raven keeps fighting him off. Uh, At one point, I was just like... Get a longer weapon or stay away from him. He's handcuffed to the ropes. Like, you keep running into him. It was just such a goofy... And and then there's the ending, which, you know, it felt like a classic ECW thing, again, where it took so long to set up those table spots for the payoff they got. And so, before we throw it to Joe, I, I'll note, this was not the original finished plan of the match. And I'm not even talking the hair stipulation. Weeks later in The Observer, it came out, Dave wrote... In little, um, let me just see where I can find it. In little-known trivia, the plan finished with the Punk Raven hair versus hair match that was supposed to take place on September 6th, but that TNA got on its show with Douglas instead was going to be Tommy Dreamer doing a save when Raven was being double teamed, but then turning on Raven and costing him his hair. Now here's the funny thing: Gabe must have read that Observer because the next week, this is what Dave writes. Regarding last week's note on the Raven versus CM Punk hair match and Dreamer's involvement had it taken place, it was an idea suggested. Raven had pushed for the idea, but Booker gave Sapolsky said there was no way he would have involved Dreamer in that match because it wasn't the right time. It would seem to be impossible at this point to get Dreamer to wrestle on an ROH show, and Sapolsky said the idea he wanted was to use the match to get Punk over. This was all a moot point since TNA pressured Raven into doing the hair match on their show. So, that's the other thing. Raven's original idea was basically to make the end of this match all about the honey dreamer uh-huh. and him and not CM Punk. Yeah. Which is wild. But Joe, what was this like live? Oh, this is a disaster live. There were a lot of like really bad weapons you, you didn't get to use, like pythons and like plastic frisbees. <laughs> Raven even broke over his own head before the match. There was a, a kitchen sink, and I know Raven did take a rake to Punk's groin at one point, so there was that. Um, Cole Cabana sauntered out at one point. They made it seem like he kind of just teleported to uh, <laughs> to ringside. They're like, what's Cole Cabana doing there? <laughs> and um, he threw powder in Raven's eyes, so maybe that was some of the... Uh... Oh, that is what it was. Yeah, it was powder. Okay. Oh, damn. I wanted to be pus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so he gave Punk uh, the set of the handcuffs, so Punk cuffed Raven to the cage and it was beating on him. Then those handcuffs broke, but thankfully they had another pair, so I guess they were thinking oh ahead God. there. Uh, and like you said, the ridiculous handcuff uh, comeback while he's handcuffed. Like, Punk just couldn't roll, like, you know, Punk keeps getting up and running and feeding him, and not just, like, rolling away and getting a weapon or just not getting hit. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. Like, you didn't really mention this, but Cabana broke up a pin. He threw, like, a chair at the ref it like lightly grazed him but the ref was like ah like he got hit with a cannonball (laughs) and uh like you know it just goes on and on and that last table they broke i think was set up for a while because i knew the match wouldn't end it was like Chekhov's table it's not ending until someone goes through that table that's what happens you know punk at ddt through it and a admittedly cool finish but it was just like 
it was uh, like I know at the time, like by far the worst ROH main event I had seen, and just. So what did you like think of the? E- I was gonna say, what did you think of the editing job? Uh, like you said, it was not half bad. Like when I went to rewatch it, I was like, oh, that was you know feasible. Now they cut out two thirds of the match, and it yeah. was certainly choppy in points. You could tell, like, you know, Punk's almost instantly covered in blood. You could tell we skipped uh, some chronology there, but it wasn't that bad. Like it, you know, it wasn't great. I'm not gonna recommend anyone go see it, but. In terms of what it actually was and how it was presented, they did do a fairly admirable job in showing something that wouldn't, you know, make you puke. I think we also need to know how shoddy this cage looked. This was the first ever Ring of Honor cage match. It looked like they put it together on an angle, like it was kind of slanted on one side. And I know on the uh, an honorable mention podcast, they've mentioned sometimes about the horrors of setting up the horrors of setting up that cage, and. Uh, it, it just always looked unsafe and rickety, and it was hard if you didn't get like the handheld cam at ringside to sometimes to see through it, which the hard cam wasn't always great. And I actually have one other thing. I, well, actually, before you go, before you do okay. the one other thing, I want to mention the cage. I think it's actually funny that you say that because I always thought ROH's cage was surprisingly like seemed surprisingly sturdy to me because I remember the cages WWE used to use when they did cage matches like often back then and they like the ones they lowered from the ceiling and they seemed rickety to me the ones in TNA always seemed very rickety to me and I always thought the ROH cages seemed a little more solid and I was surprised by like how decent they seem considering you know it's a lower budget thing. So I, I found it interesting that you said that about the cages because I, I actually had a very different impression of the cage. Hmm. We'll have to keep that. We'll have to remember that and look in, into that as we see Ring of Honor cage matches going forward. Maybe it was just I. Maybe I was just swayed by. Again, it looked kind of like they put it together slanted, or maybe I was just swayed by the match. But one other thing I actually have here in my notes is I have a bit of a recap from a CM Punk's thoughts of a from a 2003 shoot interview on this match. Um, Punk, when he talks about this match, says that the match was a bad experience. And if he could go back in time, they, they ask him, like, what would you do to change the match? And Punk says, what would I do? I would convince everyone involved to listen to me, he says. Um, Punk says Raven is a perfectionist. And basically, seem, and basically, Punk seems to say that Raven overruled him on some things with this match. Maybe not saying everything he was going to say. Punk wanted the match to have climb-out cage rolls and not have pinfalls and not have weapons in it. Punk says he beat himself up for weeks after the match. He bemoaned that they had this gem of a feud that everyone wanted to book all over the indies and that they ended it that way. This was before they had one more blow-off match. Uh Um, Punk Punk also says that the crowd was dead from all the wrestling they had already seen in a hot building. And he also said a miscue where his entrance music was played when he wasn't ready also didn't help things. Punk said when Raven hit him with a shovel and it didn't make a noise, the crowd groaned, but Punk said it hurt him really bad. Punk said every weapon Raven hit him with hurt. And going back, his face was lumpy and like a bruise. Punk also says he and Raven had a disagreement about how to approach the match in terms of character. Raven wanted Punk to play the scared, trepidatious heel, while Punk thought that Raven, after Raven poured the beer down his throat on an earlier show, he should have been, like, really angry and wanting revenge on Raven as bad as Raven wanted revenge on Punk. Punk says in the end they did things Raven's way, although I don't really think Punk played a trepidatious heel in this match. He just played guy that gets hit with weapons. Um... So yeah, even Punk, as remembered, this was not 
good. Sean Radican, who was live, wrote, The sound from the weapons didn't sound heavy, so there was a small amount of booze from the crowd. From my vantage point, Raven wasn't hitting Punk very hard with the weapons he was using. So Radican kind of like playing exactly into what Punk's talking about. Uh-huh. Raven eventually used a cheese grater to pus Punk, punk open and he bled heavily. Did we, crowd- did, did, did we see the cheese grater? I don't think so. No, right? Yeah, that, I think we just see Punk bleeding. I don't yeah. think they even show us why he's bleeding. As the crowd was at, what, uh, something, um, he says, as the crowd was, oh, we'll get to something in a second, but I'm just trying to see my one last note before we get to the post-match angle. Dave wrote, maybe more diplomatically in The Observer, he wrote, we had two different versions on the main event, although everyone agreed it didn't get over to the live crowd. It was said the ring entrances for the main event were slow and dramatic, but fans didn't like the match, with a lot of booing, particularly for the weapon shots. There were said to be too many weapon shots and too many that sounded like Tupperware on impact. Raven had blamed it on the show being too long and the crowd was dead, but several fan reports said they came to Ring of Honor to see wrestling and not a garbage wrestling match that would never end. Hmm. Um, Both guys brutalized each other with weapons and were black and blue and bruised up because the crowd wasn't buying it. We also heard there were problems with the weapons as they made no noise, but actually hurt like hell, which is the exactly the opposite of what you want. It was said that a large percentage of the crowd was vocal about not liking what they were doing. Joe, being there live, do you remember how like much unrest there was? It kind of comes across watching live, but like, do you remember how much the crowd, what the vibe of the crowd was for this? I think everyone just wanted it to be over at like you know the twenty minute mark, and then went on for like another ten minutes. Yeah, so like that's, that's a long cage match. Yeah, th- I mean, it's still crazy to think about. It's a 31 minute match they edited almost 20 minutes out of. Like, that's wild to think about. Like, I would almost be curious, even though from what you've said, it's not worth seeing what this looks like in full. If this was the best, you know. I'm surprised they never, like, did put that on like an uncensored release, but I'm sure the wrestlers were like, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Punk obviously not happy with this match, to say the least. Um, then we get the post-match angle, which is a special, weird thing all of its own. Also, I wanted to bring up, this is a match where both guys apparently said they wanted to kill each other. It started with a co- uh, co- collar and elbow tie-up, which I know, like, Brian Alvarez would probably have a heart attack about that. Um... So after the match, the lights go off, and when they come back on, Raven is strapped to a giant X symbol with a strand of barbed wire wrapped around him, which is playing off the classic Raven-Salmon crucifixion angle. I'll note, the the time between Raven DDTing Punk off the second rope through a table and winning the match, the lights going off, and then him being strapped to an X that got pulled through the ring, was super quick. Must have been edited also, right? It had to have been. Because it, it, it felt like it shouldn't have been that easy. Like, yeah. It was like literally like 30 seconds of darkness, <laughs> giant X symbol in the ring that Raven is strapped to, Punk is recovered, barbed wire around Raven. Um, I wrote, this seemed almost too quick. We go from Punk taking a giant bump and losing it, and it doesn't take very long to go from that to Raven strapped to a giant symbol they brought into the ring. Uh, Punk gets on the mic. He says Ravens won the battle, but not the war. And he just leaves with Raven strapped to this giant X symbol he had made for tonight. The funniest part is the commentary. Because Gabe was like, I am actually in fear right now. I am scared. Yeah. When the when the lights were out. And, the, and like, 
And Gabe was just terrified when he said, like, oh my god, he's tied to the symbol. It's like, Gabe, did, is somebody, did somebody like dare you to do commentary like this? Was this like a prank? Because it was so over the top. Honestly, Gabe's commentary on this show. I love you, Gabe, but kind of ridiculous in general. I, I felt like, so, so here's a question, I, Matt, I think we're only going to be able to answer later because there's one more match in the ROH Raven Punk feud, but I'm wondering... Like after I watched this match, I felt like this feud. I really enjoyed it. It should have ended on the match before this. Like I felt like, oh my god, I've really soured on this just in this one night. But I don't know if that's because the match and angle weren't great, or if be- because it maybe it's just too long. Like I don't know, and I guess we won't know till we watch the one more match and see if that maybe picks it up. But yeah, I mean, I think honestly, even if the next match is good, I think that could be true. You know, because a good match will still be a few months removed from the peak of the feud. You know what I mean? So I, I do think that next match is going to be better. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that clearly the feud peaked to death before Dishonor. And uh, it's also interesting that um, this, again, I think one thing Ring of Honor has been great at at this point in its history was it would use a couple ideas in the some of the undercard wrestlers from ECW, but Ring of Honor was very good, unlike a lot of their competitors at the time, of of being something very different from ECW. But to me, this whole match and the post-match angle are very ECW-ish. I mean, even the strapped crucifixion angle is right out of the ECW playbook, and then you hear that Raven wanted the whole angle to be about Tommy Dreamer at the end, it felt like Raven, and I don't know if it was just Raven or what, like they were, this was the first time Ring of Iron was verging on just turning a something about it into like an ECW, like, l- legacy show. Even anything that involved the lights going out and then something appearing in the ring when they were back on is super ECW. Yeah. And, and again, Gabe, one of the great things about Gabe was even though he learned a lot from Paul Heyman and did a few of his kind of his, his tricks... He was very good about trying to be differ- differentiate himself from him, and so much of this just really felt ECW. And it's it's good that Gabe did said no to Raven about like letting Tommy Dreamer be the guy that cost Raven his hair. Like obviously that wouldn't have happened anyway, but um, yeah, just weird. And it looked pretty rough on Raven too. Like it, he uh. It looked like it was a hard time getting the the barbed wire out of his hair after the match. Like, and he was there for a while. Like, Joe, did you notice anything after the match live? I don't think we got the. Uh, it had been a long show at that point. I think we got the hell out of there. Yeah, yeah. So, probably... Once we saw Raven get crucified, I'm like, well, time to beat the traffic. So. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we'll move on then to. Um... Oh, I do, I do well, just want to know oh, one more yeah, thing. Say... Where oddly they talked about like, and next time they're doing a pick your poison where you know. Raven's picking an opponent for CM Punk and and vice versa. And it's like, this may be their last singles match, but it's like, it just undermined the match while we're watching it. Like, all right, this is still going to clearly go on. I just thought that was so odd. Like, they had to announce it, like, during the match. Like, I don't know. They couldn't sit, wait till afterwards or just not announce it till uh, the next show. Uh, I just thought that was very odd. That's well, I, I think that they didn't – like in real life, they didn't announce it, right? But since they had already done the, the show when they recorded the commentary, yeah. they could promote it on this. It's, it's weird because obviously 
I think they probably knew they were going to do another one because why would you keep the feud going with a pick your poison where the next show, Glory by Honor 2, the idea is Raven and Punk will each choose each other's opponents. So obviously the feud huh. is ongoing. Well, I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure they didn't book the pick your poison until after this match. In like yeah, in, in re- okay. yeah, and then and I think the punk like I still think this might have been intended to be the blow off, um, you know, just like that. Raven got his win, but Punk still got to look strong in the end. Because even the CM Punk shooter view I was referencing earlier, it's ta- I think it's taped between this match and the conclusion match, and it must not have been booked yet or not announced because Punk is acting like that's the end of the feud and he's really disappointed when they do have one more match. Right. So. Yeah, there must have been a change in plans or something, but yeah, Joe had a great point there where they've done this before with the Death Before Dishonored dog collar match where they really sell, oh, this is the end of the feud, but the fact that they had to kind of, they were selling on commentary at the same time, that there'd be an extension to it, like, two things kind of working against each other. And finally, we get to the last uh, segment of the show, the little backstage promo. Classic close-up Samoa Joe promo. He's chewing gum this time. Uh, Joe says Christopher Daniels is talking a lot about destiny, that it's his destiny to win Joe's belt and all this stuff. Joe says maybe it was Jay Briscoe's destiny to win tonight and embarrass Joe a little bit on the way to getting a title shot. Joe says maybe it's Jay's destiny to get beaten unmercifully unmercifully by Joe when Jay gets his title shot. Joe says he made Glory by Honor a famous event. He says he's always been the bully and never been the underdog all his life, and that Daniel's destiny is to get choked out, dropped on his head, and possibly have his career ended by Joe. And then Joe does his usual, I am Samoa Joe, I am the Ring of Honor World Champion, I am pro wrestling. Just your standard good Samoa Joe promo. Yeah, he's good at these. These are always yeah. these are always solid. They always get the point across. And so that wraps up the show. And before we get into our thoughts, I thought I would bring back again. I just thought it was interesting to see what someone else's perspective, Sean Radikin, who was there live, what he said. And again, I think this might have been his first Ring of Honor show. Radikin wrote, "I really enjoyed the show, but the crowd wasn't very enthusiastic. There were several people trying to be cool and start chants, but they were met with boos." The few who wanted to chant wondered aloud why no one else was chanting. I thought part of the problem with the crowd might have been that the show was simply too long. It lasted over four hours, and the crowd didn't seem to have energy to cheer for anything for the last couple of matches, with the exception of a few big spots. I have to say that Ring of Honor offers a lot of great wrestling at a good price, but they might want to consider shortening their show because it is very long. (laughs) And boy, oh boy, do they not pay attention to Sean Radikin's advice for a very long time. Um, so that was the show. Joe, what did you think about the show at the time and revisiting it? I thought it was probably the lesser ROH show I had attended live. And uh, going back, it's, um, I mean, it's certainly an interesting show. Sometimes not for the best reasons. There is certainly some good stuff on here. Uh, I wouldn't, I cannot call this a must-watch. I think kind of the, the Monday Night Raw comparison really holds true in this one because we we had a segment where, you know, two wrestlers have a confrontation. It's like, well, you'll meet up later in the night. And that's kind of that impromptu match kind of happened here. Like you'll see every week on raw. I mean, there was some good stuff. If you've never seen this, I mean, I probably wouldn't recommend it. I mean, the punk Raven thing is interesting, but you're seeing a really chopped up view, which, you know, like I said, there's curious things on here. There's good things on here. There are bad things on here, but there are much better ROH shows to see before this. 
Matt, what would you think? I'm guessing I'm going to be the high vote on this show. I had never seen this one before. Uh, one of the few ROH shows from that era that I never saw. And I thought it was super entertaining. Like, a lot of it for bad reasons. Like, the main event was a mess, uh, although I thought the editing was good. The um, Special K Carnage Crew match was kind of disgusting. Like, it was, like, really horrible the way they did it. But certainly a lot to think and talk about. Um I liked a couple of the, the, the I liked the two Briscoes matches. You know, I thought that Homicide and Acid was kind of a must-see match. Like it was problematic in a lot of ways, but also in the same way that like if people like that Samoa Joe versus Necro Butcher match from 2005, you know, this wasn't as good as that, but it, it had a lot of the same problems and it was entertaining for some of the same reasons. Um I thought this was a dynamic, interesting show. Um so I, you know, I'm not saying thinking of it in the way of like I'm recommending or not recommending the show, but just to, as a viewer myself, I was thoroughly entertained and thought there was a lot to talk about coming out of this show. And as somebody whose, you know, goal right now is to review and analyze these shows, I think there were there have been way less interesting shows that we've talked about in recent months than this one. So I will give it a high thumbs in the middle. I I think Matt you nailed it there i didn't realize till you're saying it, but i think this show is not a bad show but it's more interesting than it is good like it's a very interesting show as as a show if i was just saying sitting down and watching it like i think the the i agree with you that the trent homicide match is almost a must-see maybe it is just a must-see and i thought you know there's a lot of stuff that's average on the show. I, I was probably the high vote on the BJ uh, Mark match. I thought that was outright good. So it's not a terrible show to watch, but it's more, I think it's even more just interesting for the purposes of the stuff we do, especially like the punk Raven thing. I wouldn't recommend that to watch, but if you want to see like a weird piece of history and you know the backstory, I think it's interesting in that respect. And that's an example of a few things on the show, I think, like that, where if you're a geek like us, it's probably worth a watch. If not, the one thing that's if, – if you're if you're more just into is it a good show by traditional standards, I think the one only thing you need to see is Trent Acid and Homicide. I, but, would, I, agree, I would agree with that. Um, that will be it for the show. Uh, I want to thank Joe, as always, for putting up with me and Matt as we explore <laughs> Boston together, or the Boston area, and I can't wait to see what new arena we'll be in every other show with you. <laughs> um, uh, again, Joe's on podcast everywhere, but thecubsfan.com, Voices of Wrestling, and, you know, here, he's got a regular home here. Um, next time on the show, if you want to contact us, it's at Trevor Dame, at Mayor MGF, and at Joe Gagney, is it? Yep. And um, next time on, you know, you can email us at through the years at gmail.com, blah, blah, blah. We post on message boards. And next time on the show, we will be covering Glory by Honor to another super long super show, Dear God in Heaven, <laughs> Terry Funk versus CM Punk, Samoa Joe versus Christopher Daniels for the title. New tag team champions are crowned. And although I always say tentatively, because you never know what could happen, we are currently have a very special first-time guest booked for the next episode. Should be a lot of fun. And I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Joe, Matt, everybody, and thank you, the listeners. 25 episodes. Thank you so much. <laughs>